Hi everyone. Welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. This episode is with Nick Lane. He is a professor of evolutionary biochemistry at University College London. He is an author of several books like Power Sex Suicide, Life Ascending, and The Vital Question. His latest book is Transformer: The Deep Chemistry of Life and Death. Here we talk about what is life, life as an information, importance of Krebs cycle, how did the life start, consciousness, chronic diseases like cancer, and process of aging. Enjoy the conversation. Share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So once we think of uh, you know having a conversation about origin of life, uh, first question that always comes: What is life? Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, thinking about this question, and uh, of course, there is a bit of history about it. There, there are four books written so far on the question entitled uh, "What Is Life." Uh, exactly. You, you've been counting, haven't you? Right. Exactly, I know. Yeah. I know. Probably so, three of them. I'm not sure about the fourth. Um, uh, there is yes, one I mean, with the. the uh, with uh, from the uh, the from chemist Adi Pross. Yes, I'm familiar with that one and Schrodinger's famous book. And there was exactly. one by Haldane as well. Yes, and, which and, uh, turned turned out to be a collection of essays, which was slightly disappointing. Exactly, and the last uh, the recent book by Paul Nurse, What Is Life? Ah, oh, of course, yes, yeah. right. Oh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I still think it's the wrong question. That's um, what my question was. What do you think? It's a good question or not? No, I think it's an unanswerable question. I think it's really the wrong question because what it makes you think about as soon as you say what is life, we tend to think of an object, of a thing, of a person, you know, of a of 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 a living object, you might say, rather than as a process over time. And we are living our lives, and we're breathing continuously, and we'll be dead if we put a plastic bag on our head, and 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 so on. But if you're thinking about the origin of life, then we need to strip away all this complexity, um, and you know the, all the cardiovascular system and respiratory system that's supplying oxygen right to our cells, and um, and, and realize what that what that is is a continuous chemical reaction between effectively the the hydrogen stripped out of food and the oxygen that we're breathing in, and it's powering everything that we do all the time. And so this is the process of living over time. Um, and if we're thinking about the origin of life, then we need something comparable to that, but stripping away all the complexity of the cardiovascular system and everything else. But we still need a continuous chemical reaction. Uh, and so we're, we're looking, I would look for places like hydrothermal vents, where you've got a continuous flow, a continuous reactivity, a continuous bringing together of effectively reactive fluids, which is in some way analogous to, to breathing. Um, so the idea then, you know, we've stripped away pretty much all the thing that you would call life, which is to say the organism, and we've, we're left with a reaction, a continuous chemical reaction. Uh, and that, from the origin of life, starts with something very, very simple. It's we're, we're starting with prebiotic chemistry of the simplest kind of hydrogen reacting with carbon dioxide to make, um, you know, small, small organic molecules, Krebs cycle intermediates, and this kind of thing. Um, and we have to go from there all the way up to genes and, and coding for molecular machines and a, a tremendous amount of complexity. Uh, and that's a long if you like evolutionary distance, it's a long distance from the simplicity of prebiotic chemistry all the way through to 
the complexity of a, a living cell that we would recognize. Um, and it's almost impossible to draw a line across that at any one point and say, now it's alive. Um, without all the preceding stuff, it would never have come to being alive. And without, you know, I would say the, the faster we can get to information, if you like, the better. And if you wanted to draw a line across, it would be the introduction of information into biology. Um, but it really matters into what context do you introduce information? Because we start out with no information and we need to end up with information that ha has meaning. Uh, and so it, it's an arbitrary place to draw the line there as well. So any question, what is life, tends to implicitly suggest that there's a moment, that there's a kind of a phase transition, that we go from a non-living thing to a living thing. Uh, and, and that in some way it's an object rather than a process. So I think the question is, it's a really human question. And we all want to ask it, and it's a great title for a book. Uh, but I think in the end, it's just <laughs> fundamentally misleading about about what we're trying to answer. Yeah, uh, the I mean, of course, once we think of um, this question, the information part, it, it generally comes in. Uh, I think it was already introduced uh, at the time in the last century itself, especially with the code of life, uh, with the structure of DNA, etc. Um, well, the, the the famous book by Schrodinger, What is Life, was really, this was written at a time, in fact, when we did know uh, from, from Avery's work, this was in 1944, and Avery had just published that uh, the, the hereditary material is in fact DNA, um, but not very many people believed it. Uh, and Haldane, who also wrote a book called What is Life <laughs> a few years after that, uh, had dismissed DNA as being relevant uh, to her hereditary uh, material on the grounds that there wasn't enough variation in, 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 its, um, in its chemistry. Uh, and he pointed to histone proteins instead as uh, proteins generally as, as having much more variation in their structure and therefore much more likely to be a code. And, you know, he, he kind of missed the point. Schrodinger followed Haldane's view and was also thinking about proteins rather than DNA, but he talked in much more abstract terms about an aperiodic crystal, which is to say some kind of crystalline structure that doesn't have a completely repeating structure to it, where the, where the, where the intimate structure keeps changing. And actually he was really describing DNA and the, and, the, and the letters along DNA without knowing that that was what he was describing. This is one of the wonderful things about that book, is it, he, 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 has an abstract view of what's required and actually now you read it now you realize he's describing dna but he didn't know at the time what he was describing he was simply saying this is what it, it must be something like this <laughs> so that's why it's still worth reading this book um but but we've had an obsession i would say probably a healthy obsession with dna is obviously incredibly important and it's taught us a tremendous amount about the way that life works, but it's tended to marginalize other important aspects of how life works, including from my own point of view, energy flow and metabolism. And we tend to just assume without really proof that, that information that genes invent metabolism and invent the way that cells operate with their energy systems and so on, um, and there's a lot of serious problems with that view. And if you think about it the other way around, that, that, that energy flow and metabolism came first and genes arose in that environment, that has its own problems as a view, um, but, but it also solves a lot of problems. And from my own, from my own perspective, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, a really productive way of asking these questions.
Yeah. So the, I mean, of course, uh, these different schools, schools uh, which are there in origin of life yeah. research, what you mentioned that metabolism first or replication first, information first, etc. Uh, or they can be also membrane first, uh, this kind of uh, notions. Um, but I mean, of course, we can go beyond that. And uh, more and more research papers are coming on this perspective that it was not like only either RNA world or something that it, it was all soup cocktail of different chemicals. And so out of that, there has to be something uh, simple, but meaningful, which has to come out, which will give um, a kind of this precursor for the origin of life. And uh, in your view, it's metabolism, right? Um, I, I, yes, I, I would say m membranes and energy are, are equally important. And this is how I came to the field of the origin of life, because my own background is in bioenergetics and how mitochondria work and mitochondria are the power packs in our own cells. And it seems like a million miles away from the origin of life. But mitochondria were free living bacteria once, and they're powered effectively by electrical charges on the membrane. Uh, and it's a very, very sophisticated system with lots of molecular machines and a, and a membrane, which is practically impermeable to protons and protons are tiny things and it's difficult to have a membrane that's impermeable to protons uh, and yet this system is is universally conserved across life pretty much all cells work this way and so you're left with this strange question that well it seems to be really important really fundamental it's a strange thing that all cells have got an electrical charge on the membrane surrounding them um, and yet the 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 kind of the systems that are using it are incredibly sophisticated and plainly the product of genes and natural selection and nothing to do with prebiotic chemistry. So there's a, to my mind, a paradox there about, well, how, how could such a system have got going and become universally conserved across all of life so early on? Um, and, and, and so you start to think about, well, what, what kind of things is it powering today and how does it do it? And, and many people would be familiar with the, the ATP synthase, which is a beguilingly marvelous machine. It's a rotating motor that sits in the membrane and, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a wheel, if you like, in the membrane, which is turned by the, by the, by the influx of protons across the membrane. And, and that's making mechanical changes in the head group, which is making the universal energy currency of life, ATP. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gobsmackingly impressive machine. It's, it's, it's iconic, really. Um, uh, and it's also, I think it's easy to be taken in by it. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to think, well, what what could be, um, you know, a prebiotic equivalent to an ATP synthase, something that doesn't need genes to, and I could never really think of anything. And, and then I realized um, it's missing the point. It's, it, it is a product of genes. It came in the era, it arose in the era of, of, of genes and selection and so on. Um, so what could natural geochemical proton gradients drive before that? And, and um, something equally important to life, which is CO2 fixation. And a lot of bacteria operate that way. They're, they're using the inflow of, of protons into cells and the electrical charges on the membranes not to just drive the energy currency of life, but to 
um, to drive growth in effect, to, to, to turn hydrogen and CO2 into the organic matter, into more of themselves. Um, and that, unlike the ATP synthase, this exquisite molecular motor, this is, I won't say it's simple, but you can conceptually imagine what prebiotic versions would be. We're dealing with little clusters of metal ions like iron itself and sulfur and nickel and so on. And they form little mineral-like structures inside proteins today. And these same minerals will form in hydrothermal vents on a, on a larger scale. And you think, okay, so we have an inorganic barrier with these minerals in, and we have different fluids which are mixing, uh, and possibly the electrons or protons can cross these barriers. Can it drive work? Can it drive the reaction between CO2 and hydrogen? Can it turn gases into living molecules? Can it drive growth? Can it structure how all of these things happen? So really what I'm saying, and, and over the last five or six, seven years, it, it's gone from more or less hand-waving, that it would be wonderful if it did, and theoretically it should, and to, to it really does happen. It's been done in the lab. It's still a question mark, can it happen on the right scale? Can it really drive everything we want it to drive? But you know, the, the basic first steps, yes, it, it does work. Um, and, and so then, what you're left with is is this feeling that okay so we've got a, a structured inorganic system which is capable of marshalling energy flow to drive the origins of metabolism to to drive the reactions between hydrogen and carbon dioxide to make the organic molecules that make up life and one of those organic molecules in the end are the building blocks of dna and rna and so on so what we effectively have is a system which is capable of growing of converting a disequilibrium in the environment into, into a growing organic system in which genes and information emerge, and then they modify how it grows and, that, and, and so on. So it, there's a lot in that, which is hypothesis, let's say hypothesis, because you could say speculation, but let's call it a hypothesis because it's testable. It's not necessarily easy to test, but it makes specific predictions that are testable. Uh, and quite a few of them are beginning to look as if they may be true. Yeah, but this is like, it's so interesting since what we are discussing here is the literally gases coming together and forming um, life uh, material that we even use like modern in, in modern days. Um, but there is a lot of base to cover there. Um, it sounds crazy, with the, doesn't it? <laughs> So starting with the information, so once you mentioned about ATP synthase, ATP synthase, uh, we can think of it as these molecular machines, again, coming from DNA. So DNA can... So I think I would place that later as a, as, as a product of genes and information. Yeah. So the, so the, so the point being that, um, I mean, of course, that, so these ATP synthase and stuff that uh, we, that you just described, they come from DNA. I mean, it's not about... Uh, the information at the origin of life scale, but this is what, these are the molecular machines that we use nowadays. So you are looking yes. something equivalent of that kind of system in the origin of life scale, which would be completely inorganic. Um, and it, it can build those kind of um, how how to say energy storage molecules because- Well, it's not so, I mean, it's not so much energy storage. I mean, there is some energy storage involved, but, um... What we're dealing with is, 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 is two gases, hydrogen and carbon dioxide. And it's, it's, I find this strange, but 
under the kind of conditions that I'm talking about, that's to say 50 degrees to 70 degrees centigrade, alkaline conditions, a relatively high partial pressure of hydrogen, which is there's fluids bubbling with hydrogen gas, um, and an alkaline pH. So under this set of conditions, which correspond pretty much to an alkaline hydrothermal vent, it's a type of hydrothermal vent that we find on the bottom of the sea. Um, under those conditions, thermodynamics says, and, uh, and this is a, a, you know, a scary word for a lot of people, but basically just think of water flowing downhill. Water doesn't want to flow uphill, it wants to flow downhill. These two gases will release energy if they react together to produce um, methane and water, for example. Um, but they don't react together very easily or very quickly. It's a, quite a difficult thing to do. And uh, chemists have been trying to make this reaction work for a while. And it, you know, it's a really important reaction because we can already split water, get the hydrogen out of water, but we, we can't economically make it react with CO2. If we could, then we can uh, effectively strip CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into something useful, organic molecules, let's call them hydrocarbons, let's call it, um, you know, it, it's, it's the basis for, for, for all of humanity now, and it would be basically carbon neutral. But this is what life is doing all the time. Um, and it doesn't, overall, it doesn't cost any energy. The problem is to get them to react in the first place, there's a kinetic barrier, which is to say they're quite stable molecules and they don't really want to react. When you get them to react, then they'll release energy, but getting them to react is the hard bit. And it's the electrical charges on the membranes that are doing that. And these are provided free of charge in, in hydrothermal systems, in certain hydrothermal systems, um, and, and are capable of, of effectively facilitating the reaction between these two gases to make, uh, to, to, to make organic molecules. So thermodynamically, um, having hydrogen and CO2 in, in the strict absence of oxygen, this won't work if there's any oxygen around, at 50 degrees centigrade and you shake them up, um, what you should get is cells coming out. Thermodynamics says cells are more stable than a mixture of two gases, hydrogen and CO2. The reality is you can shake it up for half a million years and nothing much is going to happen. You've got to get them to, to do, take those first steps to, to react together. And that's what the electrical charges on the, on the cell membranes are doing or on inorganic barriers in, in hydrothermal vents. Yeah, but why hydrogen and um, CO2? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question um, because that is how life works on Earth. Uh, so then there's an interesting question, well, you know, is this just a, would, would life work that way somewhere else? Is there any reason to think, or could life be completely and utterly different? And uh, my own feeling is most life that we find would not be so dissimilar to life on Earth. And that might seem like a really limited <laughs> imagination, um, but it's based on it's, it's based on carbon chemistry, really. Um, carbon is really good at the kind of chemistry it does, much better, say, than silicon at, at, at the kind of chemistry that it does. It's very good at making large complex molecules, um, and they're strong, they're robust, they don't fall to pieces very easily. Um, but you know, a key to this is carbon is really common. It's one of the most abundant elements in the universe. Uh, and water 
is really common. It's ubiquitous. Again, we're dealing with oxygen and hydrogen and, and, and these light elements are among the easiest ones to make. So we, we already know of, um, or, or we can extrapolate that there will be tens of billions of wet, rocky Earth-like planets in the solar, no, in, 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 in the Milky Way. Um, so, so these kind of conditions that we have on Earth, the origin of life four billion years ago, should be common. And carbon, is, if, you, if you heat it up, you tend to get uh, CO2 as a gas. That's what's coming out of volcanoes and so on. Um, carbonate rocks like limestone, if they get subducted into the earth, they come out as carbon dioxide gas. And that's, you could think of it as a Lego brick. It's, it's a small molecule that's not very reactive, so it can accumulate in the atmosphere, but you can snap bits off and add bits on and build molecules of the complexity of DNA from it. So you've got a, a kind of molecular modeling kit and the individual bricks, the Lego bricks are, are carbon dioxide molecules. And they're again, common in the atmospheres of exoplanets, but you know, in, in Mars, in Venus, it's, they're full of CO2, these atmospheres. So now we come back around to your question after that, um, which is how likely are these processes? And the answer is, well, it's highly likely that we will be starting with carbon dioxide, that it will be abundant and it's very good at its job. And in water, uh, organic molecules form all kinds of interesting structures, membranes that don't dissolve, but form structures. You get free structure from carbon in water, basically. Um, and it's this free structure, you may say, oh, it's a low entropy state, but it's, it's not. It's like a bubble, a soap bubble or something. It wants to form, and because it forms, it releases energy. It's the most stable state it can be in for these molecules in that, in that shape, just as oil will float on water, it, it's the most stable state, but you've got some structure there. Um, and that structure releases energy, which in effect is heat, which is increasing the entropy of the universe. So you get free structure. Uh, it doesn't, it, 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 this is following the second law of thermodynamics, entropy increases as a result of these structures forming. Um, and we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with organic molecules. Hydrogen is split from water in, 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 uh, in these hydrothermal systems, which are a reaction between rock and water. It's as simple as that. So again, we would expect to find it almost everywhere. And, uh, and what do you want to do if you want to make organic molecules? Well, you, you, CO2 itself is the building block, but organic molecules, if you were to come up with a kind of a very vague formula for life to a first approximation, it would be CH2O. So you strip out one of the oxygens from, 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 from carbon dioxide. You have a little bit of nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur and everything else in there as well. But basically the, 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 the kind of the, the, the um, hand of cards that you get for carbon-based life is CH2O. And those H2, the two, the two hydrogen atoms are, are coming uh, from water or from hydrogen gas or wherever they're coming from. Um, but you need to put hydrogen onto carbon dioxide to make living cells, to make living molecules. And all of these things are abundantly free in, in hydrothermal systems and would be in any wet, rocky planet. Um, and so, uh, so we're always going to be faced with the same problem, that we need to get CO2 and hydrogen to react together to form organic molecules. And you need electrical charges on, on membranes or on inorganic barriers to make that reaction happen. And so it may seem very limited or lacking in imagination, but I think that if we were to find, say, a thousand different life forms out there 
in, um, in, in the Milky Way, the, the majority of them, maybe 990 of them, would turn out to be carbon-based and cellular and, and not utterly dissimilar to what we see here. Maybe there's 5% of them would be, you know, funky, strange, different things. But um, just statistics would say this is a good way of doing it based on the most abundant materials in the universe. So it's basically hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and hydrothermal vents, right? But that all three of them, at least they, they are crucial. Uh, because then, I mean, of course, people can ask this question that if it's hydrogen and carbon dioxide only, then why not, um, you know, why there is there are no life forms in my cola bottle or something, you know? <laughs> uh, well, this kind of chemistry only works in the absence of oxygen, because hydrogen and oxygen really, really want to react together. This is rocket fuel. Uh, this, is, this is what's powering rockets. Um, uh, so... As soon as you've got any oxygen, then the hydrogen will react preferentially with the oxygen to produce water as a, as a waste product. And, um, and, and the CO2 will never get a chance to react. So you'll never form any organic molecules. You'll, this chemistry doesn't work if there's any oxygen around. So it's critical that at the origin of life four billion years ago, the Earth was essentially anoxic. Oxygen came later on with photosynthesis. There would have been perhaps trace amounts of oxygen earlier than that, but next to nothing. Um, and this this chemistry only works, so it's never going to happen in your Coca-Cola bottle. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting that the there was no oxygen um, at the uh, in the early stages of the planet, but then through photosynthesis, as you mentioned, the oxygen came on the planet, and that actually took over the planet. And the, and what what is the reason why uh, then now at least all the animals and the species that we see they are. Uh, oxygen-based. We don't like take CO2 and uh, uh, throw out oxygen, right? Uh, yes, I mean, plants Plants do that. Plants yes. are converting. I mean, they're doing this same basic chemistry. Plants are taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they're taking hydrogen. They're getting the hydrogen from water. So they're using the power of the sun to split water and take the water is H2O, so they're taking the two H's out of water and cobbling them onto the CO2, leaving the oxygen left behind as a waste product, and that just goes off into the atmosphere. Um, and over time, and it's not a simple process either, but over time collects in, in, in the atmosphere. So plants are doing exactly the same chemistry that I was talking about, reacting hydrogen and CO2 to make organic molecules. Um, but they're doing it in a more sophisticated way and taking the hydrogen from water. And animals are more or less reversing that. What we are doing is, is um, eating plants. Maybe we're eating animals, but we're, we're, you know, the animals have eaten plants. And so we're, we're, we're basically eating the organic matter that came from plants. We're stripping out the hydrogen from it. Um, and if, you, if you've got this kind of general structure for organic matter of CH2O, um, we're breathing out the CO2, the carbon dioxide, um, and, and the hydrogen, the 2H in there, we're feeding it to oxygen. Um, and, and that, so we're basically powered by the same thing that rockets are powered by. We're burning hydrogen gas in, in well, not gas, but hydrogen atoms in, in, in oxygen, and using that to power everything that we're doing. And the waste product of that is water, which we breathe out. So as photosynthesis is CO2 plus H2O gives organic molecules and respiration is the organic molecules plus O2 gives CO2 and water. So we're, 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 we're more or less exactly the opposite. Um, 
And there's a tremendous amount of energy in that reaction, which powers animals to run around and chase each other and mate and <laughs> predator-prey relationships. Everything that we're familiar with animals doing uh, requires a lot of energy. And that energy is coming from really the properties of oxygen, which mean it's stable enough to accumulate in the atmosphere to high levels, 20%, 21%. Um, it's stable enough to do that, but it's reactive enough when you feed it electrons one at a time in respiration to uh, to provide all the energy for a really high octane lifestyle. But at the in the early stages, um, most of the work was done by bacteria. The bacteria did it like it was, I think, mainly cyanobacteria that they uh, once they were evolved, they could simply trap uh, carbon dioxide and uh, emit oxygen. Um, yes, they did, but there's a lot of controversy about the timeline and when exactly it happened and how exactly it happened. Um, it may be that it happened as early as three billion years ago. I mean, some people think even earlier than that, but um, there are what are called whiffs of oxygen, which is to say there are some slightly oxidized minerals from about three billion years ago that look as if they may have been oxidized by oxygen in the atmosphere in small amounts. Um, but the evidence is equivocal, and it may be that it, it wasn't until 2.2 billion years ago. Um, but there's a, there's a tipping point. You know, I described respiration and photosynthesis as, as equal and opposite processes. And there are other processes, for example, um, the formation of methane by methanogens. Well, methane will react with oxygen to form CO2 and, and, and water again, and it won't really leave a trace of itself. So if you've got a balance between photosynthesis producing oxygen and methanogenesis producing methane and the two react to each, to, to, together, then you would not accumulate any oxygen in the atmosphere over the long term. Um, so it's only when something prevents the oxygen being consumed in this way and the easiest way for that to happen is if organic matter gets buried in the earth so it's not reoxidized again by respiration and degradation and so on, um, then oxygen can accumulate. So we don't really see an accumulation of oxygen. We, we see an, an initial burst in a, in a time called the Great Oxidation Event around 2.2 billion years ago. And then we go into a long period of stasis after that, which is sometimes called the boring billion. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then we see a bunch of... <sighs> kind of global scale, almost catastrophes around about 700 million years ago, um, snowball earths where the, where, where the whole planet froze over right down to sea level at the equator. Um, and, and so, and then after, soon after that oxygen or around that time, oxygen is beginning to accumulate almost to modern levels. And that's when the Cambrian explosion happens when we first see very quickly in geological time, animals appearing in the fossil record. And you can't, it's not that oxygen necessarily drove the emergence of animals so much as you can't really have complex ecosystems with predators and prey and multiple trophic levels in the absence of oxygen because there's just not enough energy in the system. So, uh, I mean, we can thank those conditions also to, to exist because that's why we, uh, as in like animals, we exist on the planet, right? Yeah, yeah. And what, what are your thoughts on the eukaryogenesis? I mean, of course, uh, once we think of the, um, uh, of the Krebs cycle, which uh, respiration, the, the process of respiration that you explained, uh, it is mainly done in bacteria. 
in, in the sense and uh, bacteria in our case would be mitochondria uh, where, where it's done. So because that that is again another step which uh, requires um, an, another conception and we don't know much why or how this would happen. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, controversy uh, about all of this, but the the bottom line is um, all all recognizably complex life on Earth. And when I say recognizably, I'm talking about things we can see, um, and animals, plants, fungi. Um, we all have the same type of cell, which is uh, so we're all called eukaryotes, and the word eukaryote means true nucleus. And the nucleus is the, the compartment in the cell where all the DNA is stored. And bacteria don't have that compartment. They don't have, they're much smaller uh, in the order of you know, 10 to 100,000 times smaller by volume on average. Um, and, and they don't have obvious compartments. They do have some form of compartmentalization. They do have amazingly sophisticated molecular machines at the level of biochemistry bacteria in many ways are more complex than, than than eukaryotes are but in terms of their morphology their size and their apparent complexity they're very simple in comparison and there's a bit of a mystery that all all eukaryotes plants and animals and so on if you look at their cells under a microscope the cells are practically identical to each other they they differ in the proportion of of the structures and they can differ in their overall appearance but if you look does this cell have a nucleus and it, a plant cell has a nucleus and an animal cell has a nucleus and some, so does a fungi and if you look at the structure of the nucleus you realize yes it's got this elastic net around the inside of the nucleus and it's got the pore structures and it's the same proteins in the pore structures um, and the dna is coiled in exactly the same way around exactly the same type of proteins and they divide by mitosis on a spindle of, of, of amazing microtubules that pull apart the chromosomes uh, and they do, we all do sex and in an ancestral way, just meaning as, as egg cells and sperm cells fuse together and then go through this kind of crazy dance of meiosis where, where, where the, the chromosomes line up and then double themselves. And now we've got four chromosomes all lined up and then they crisscross between themselves and then go through two rounds of cell division. All of us do that. Plants do that. Amoeba does that and so on. Um, so and in 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 the in the in 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 the outside the nucleus in the cytoplasm we've got the same membrane systems we've all got mitochondria we've all got um, the same the same kind of cables and motor proteins that are doing work so the eukaryotic cells are amazingly similar to each other uh, and and if you if you kind of try and reconstruct well what what happened what came first how did how did this level of complexity arise you're left with a problem from a phylogenetic point of view. So what phylogenetics is doing is comparing gene sequences and saying, okay, well, this branch is here and that branch is there and we can reconstruct a tree of life. And you, you, you look at eukaryotes and you say, okay, so how do these genes branch? And the answer is, well, they all seem to go back and they branch together right at the beginning of the eukaryotic tree. Um, all eukaryotes have all of these genes and they've all diverged about equally between the different groups. Uh, and so you say, okay, well, what about what? What would an outgroup be? How can we distinguish what happened at the beginning? And the answer is, well, there's bacteria over there, and there's another group called archaea that look a lot like bacteria, but they're biochemically and genetically quite different, and they don't have any of these genes or any of this morphology. And so you're left with a 
I've called it a black hole at the heart of biology. All this complexity in eukaryotic cells, we don't have an easy way of getting at how it arose. Um, and we don't have a clear explanation for why bacteria never developed that level of complexity. Um, there's plenty of ideas around. The problem is that it's very hard to prove these kind of ideas. And so there's lots of squabbling. It's a big, important subject and different people have a different lens on, on that question. Um, and um, we're talking about something that happened probably 2 billion years ago. Uh, and so it's hard to reconstruct. So of course there's arguments. Um, my own take uh, is that it's not about genes. It's not about information. You get this is a recurring theme from me. I, I don't think genes are the only thing in biology. I'm not trying to, you know, I've been talking about gene trees and comparing these structures. Genes are incredibly important, but they're not the only thing in biology. Um, so, so if you think about bacteria, they have a different way of organizing genetic information. What they tend to do, you think of an E. coli cell, it, uh, it might have three, four, 5,000 genes. E. coli can differ by you know, 2,000 genes in, in this, in two, between two different cells. They, they can differ in their gene content a lot. Um, so let's say 4,000 genes. The reason they can differ a lot is that um, this is a single cell has that many genes, but but if you look at the different strains of E. coli, um, they can differ by 50% of their genome. This is more variation than in the entire vertebrate tree. How do they get to be like that? Well, they have a big metagenome, which is to say genes out there in the environment in different populations of E. coli, they get swapped around sometimes on a big scale by what's called lateral gene transfer. And you can, I like to think of it as kind of loose change, where you know, it passes around from one individual to another one. They're not vertically inherited in the same way. They're just passed around as a kind of network of how, how, how interactions between individuals, like passing money around. Um, and so there may be 30,000 genes in this meta genome. Um, and the way that most bacteria seem to work is they prefer to keep their own genome as small and as streamlined as they can, because that allows them to grow faster. But if they run into problems that they can't grow, then the easiest way out is, okay, I know I've got a problem, so I'll pick up some genes from out there in the environment and I'll weld them into myself and I'll see if I work better then. And that's the kind of the bacterial philosophy of life, you might say. Um, uh, what we can say about bacteria is that over 4 billion years of evolution, they haven't really changed. We can see fossils that look a lot like bacteria from 4 billion years ago. And we can see definite traces from 3 billion years ago that are very clearly bacteria. And we can see in the minerals signs of the metabolism that the different types of cell had, for example, including photosynthesis. And so we can reconstruct a history, a bacterial history of the earth uh, and, and they're still out there. They're still doing the same things and they've never become large and complex. You never see a flea made from bacterial cells. So why not? What's the, uh, what's, what's the problem? I, the reason I don't think it's a problem with genes and information is that they have experimented with more genes and more information and more sequence space than eukaryotes ever did. They've done it on a much bigger scale. They have practically infinite populations. They've had practically infinite times. They've got huge metagenomes, bigger than the human genome in E. coli. Uh, and they've done all this shuffling and rearrangement and everything you could imagine uh, from an information point of view. And yet they got stuck in a rut at a, at a bacterial level of complexity. So what's different about eukaryotes? Well, we have mitochondria. 
And mitochondria were bacteria and bacteria got inside another cell and there's lots of arguments about when or how or but in effect what we end up with is is multibacterial power without the overheads of having complete bacterial genomes in every single power pack um, and what that allowed us to do is swell up the nuclear genome so we can have 30,000 genes 20,000 genes in a single cell and that means that we can um, grow from a single egg cell, a fertilized egg cell, and all our cells are genetically identical, but the, the, the cells in the brain or neurons or astrocytes and glial cells in, 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 in the brain express very different genes. They switch those ones on, they switch those ones off, and in the kidneys it's different, and in the liver it's different, and in muscles it's different. Um, and, and, and so we, we have the power to store all of these genes and then switch on different ones. And that means we don't have a kind of conflict between the cells in an individual because we're all genetically, as an individual, a clone. Um, and, and that seems to work in evolutionary terms. Whereas if you bring genetically different cells together, what you get is something like a bacterial biofilm. Uh, and these cells are, they kind of get along, but they're always fighting in one way or another. They're always cheating. They're always trying to short circuit the system. Uh, and so you get a level of complexity, which is equivalent to, to a, a biofilm, which is to say you would recognize it as, as a sticky patch of cells, but not as, a, not as a complex organism, really. So one of the strongest evidence that we, uh, we have that mitochondria are literally bacteria uh, is the fact that uh, both of them, they could do this process of respiration that... And, they use like similar processes. At it's the end. basically exactly the same machinery. Uh, it's more pared down in the bacteria, but our own mitochondria still has DNA. That DNA is basically bacterial DNA. They have ribosomes, the protein building machines that um, that that, that they, mitochondria have got their own type of ribosome, which is different from the one in the cytosol, um, and. And it builds respiratory machinery for burning food in oxygen, which is exactly the same structure of all the proteins that we see. They're more complex. There's more parts to them in, in eukaryotes, but the, the core of the machine, the working part of the machine is exactly the same, superimposable uh, in, in, in terms of molecular structure and the mechanics of how they operate. Uh, so there's no there's no serious question. There's always, you know, there's always people out there who say, "Hang on a minute, I'm not sure I believe this." But to 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 you know, 999 out of a thousand people working in this kind of field, there is no question that uh, that mitochondria derived from bacteria, um, and that their genomes were whittled down from a, from a standard bacterial sized genome with three or four thousand genes down to. Um, we're left with 38 genes in our own mitochondria, of which some of them are involved in building the proteins, um, but but a few of them are are actually encoding the core subunits of the of, of the proteins uh, that are responsible for respiration. So this, to my mind, is is the most important step change in all of evolution that we go in a really trivial sense from a population of cells that is limited in its topology, that we've got an electrical charge on the membrane surrounding the cells, to a population of cells within cells where the electrical charge has been moved inside 
um, so the bacteria we've got inside. And, and now we, we have an unstable system that sheds genes from the mitochondria and accumulates them in the nucleus. So now we have a genomic asymmetry with a swollen nuclear genome and tiny mitochondrial genomes. All these electrical charges are retained inside the cell, freeing up the cell membrane to do other things like phagocytosis, eating other cells. Um, and the genes that are required to maintain this powerful electrical charge in a stable way have always been retained as mitochondrial DNA. We all have mitochondrial DNA. We inherit it from our mothers only. It's a uniparental inheritance, which is to say your mitochondria, my mitochondria are a dead end. If we have kids, I have kids, <laughs> mum's mitochondrial DNA that they have. So I could be a champion athlete with wonderful mitochondria. I'm not, but I, you know, if I was, then it doesn't matter. For my kids, they they get their mum's mitochondrial DNA. She perhaps is a champion athlete, and 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 then they will be too, because <laughs> mm -hmm. they've got these champion mitochondria. If you like, they're they're inherited clonally from the mother only. Yeah, um, uh, we'll we'll definitely talk about this point. But before that, let's uh, talk a little bit about membranes and potential uh, or the electrical charge that you mentioned. So, I mean, of course, all the cells that we have, this is like one physical barrier that we have between life and uh, or animate and inanimate inanimate matter. As but it's not like really solid uh, barrier. It is a barrier which is fluidic, which can exchange information, information being uh, uh, signals or chemicals uh, with yeah, the environment, right? right. Um, but apart from that, uh, especially in the um, eukary eukaryotic cells, as you mentioned, the other organelles, they do have uh, membranes, including mitochondria, but then there are also ER and other yes, uh, organelles yeah, yeah. in the cell. Um, so, how uh, this um, the electrical potential uh, is is created on the membrane? Um, so this was one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century um, from going back to Peter Mitchell um, and Jennifer Moyle, who uh, did all the experiments. So Mitchell had these kind of crazy ideas and, and, and Jennifer Moyle made them real, I would say. Um, and a bunch of other people doing experiments on it. But the, the idea, I suppose, going back to that time is that a cell is a bag of chemicals and the membrane sits around the cell and closes it. Um, and it's pretty much a, a semi-inert barrier to the environment outside. Uh, and, and Mitchell had been thinking about bacteria in this way um, and, and realized, well, no, it can't be semi-inert. It has to be active because the, the, there's a difference between the inside of a bacterial cell and the outside world. The, the inside accumulates all kinds of things and all kinds of wastes are pumped out over there. Uh, and so you need to be able to tell the difference between the molecules that you want to have inside and the molecules that you want to kick out. Uh, and that requires energy and it requires um, some kind of discernment. You need to be able to recognize this molecule from that one, take this one and pump it over there, which costs energy. So, so that's in a really trivial way where Mitchell was coming from. It was how do bacteria keep their insides different to their outside? And he was thinking about pH and acidity and protons. And, and, and this is one of the key, key points about how a cell maintains itself. If, if you go into an acidic environment and you allow all these protons to come rushing in, then it's going to disfigure all your proteins and you're going to die almost certainly. So we, we need to recognize protons and pump them out. But he realized there was 
at the time there was a there was an appreciation that the, the membrane was somehow important in respiration and it wasn't really quite appreciated how or if it really was or quite what was going on and he conceptualized that there that um, protons were being pumped across a membrane somehow that the energy of respiration taking hydrogen from food passing it to oxygen this releases energy that that energy is stored not in the chemistry itself directly but in a charge across the membrane and this was a, a radical way of thinking about things um, and it took a long time before it was accepted but but it, effectively when you strip hydrogen out of food what you're stripping out is electrons and protons. The hydrogen atom is one proton, one electron. We have more or less a wire within the membrane, um, which is all this respiratory machinery that I was talking about. Inside it all, there are these little clusters of iron and sulfur, the same things that we find in the vents at the origin of life, um, what we call redox centers, but basically an electron can hop from one of these to another one. You could think about lily pads in a lake or something. There's just like frogs hopping from one to the next and electrons hop down this respiratory chain and they arrive at oxygen. And, and each time they land on a redox center, it shifts the balance within a protein and, 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 and that provides the energy to pump a proton out. Um, and so what we end up with, we've got the, the electrons and the protons, the electrons go straight to oxygen, the protons cross the membrane. So now we have a load of protons on one side and fewer protons on the other side. And protons are positively charged. So now we have an electrical charge on this membrane and the protons coming through the ATP synthase are driving this motor, driving the synthesis of the energy currency ATP. But really the, the ATP is a stable energy currency. You can think of it as coins, but it's the, the thing which is actually powering life is not the ATP itself so much as the charge on the membrane. That's where all the work is being done. Um, and if we lose that charge on the membrane, that's when we die. It doesn't matter how much ATP we have. If we lose that charge, that's the end. Um, so we need to, respiration is continually regenerating that charge. Um, so it's a marvelous mechanism. And it's universally conserved across all of life uh, that effectively we're splitting protons and electrons. The current of electrons flowing to oxygen is powering extrusion of protons. So we've got a positive charge with a difference in proton concentration between the outside and the inside. And that is how life is structured. And it says membranes are centrally important. And if we're talking about bacteria, that's the plasma membrane surrounding the cell. And it is an energized membrane with an electrical charge on it. And that charge is powering work. And that is the fundamental structure of a living cell. This is just fascinating. I mean, the, the, like in my case, I mean, since I've gone through your book, I read it. Uh, so the book is Transformer, Chemistry of Life and Death. A fascinating book and all the stories that you've mentioned about discoveries. Uh, it was, again, amazing. And P Peter Mich Mitchell who got the Nobel Prize, but again, it was the, uh, the, the it was work of two, but only yes, the guy this is, in another story. Uh, got the, yes, and I, I, I hope that if people do read this book, that they'll take those stories on board. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 I had to dig around a little bit with this story because lots of people mention Jennifer Moyle's name, um, but she's often dismissed as if she was a technician who was told what to do. Um, and, and there's something wrong, something doesn't smell quite right to me. And I've talked to various people who knew her and they, they almost have reinforced that view. But when you read the papers, 
um, there's clearly a difference between the papers that Mitchell wrote by himself as a single author. And there's no doubt that he was, a, he was an imaginative genius. He came up with some amazing ideas. But you read the papers that he co-wrote with Jennifer Moyle and you realize that, well, she had a big input on this. She was not a technician. She was, and, and you read about her own background and she was a, a brilliant woman. There's no question about that. Uh, I don't think she got anything like the credit that she deserved. And the papers that I like best are the ones where she was a co-author and she was bringing a kind of analytical scientific precision of experimental precision to the questions um, that I think Mitchell perhaps lacked a little bit himself. This would be a scurrilous view to a lot of the people who worked on the chemiosmotic hypothesis. They'd probably disagree with me violently, but I am trying to reconstruct what I think happened there. And I think she was much more important than she's given credit for. And I think she deserved the Nobel Prize, a share in the Nobel Prize with Peter Mitchell. Yeah, it's it's a great job that you're doing and uh, recollecting those stories. Uh, it's I hope that we won't uh, do the same mistakes in 21st century, at least. I really hope so, so too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and thinking of uh, such a fundamental process, uh, it's just fascinating. And uh, so... In my conversation with Randy Shekman, Nobel laureate mm -hmm. for 2013, yeah. uh, um, uh, his work on autophagy. Um, so he said that it, about membranes, that uh, the, the membranes are also not linked with information uh, in a way that all the membranes, they are derived from the previous existing membranes. It's not like uh, there are yes. genes or something. So you, I mean, maybe what what you what you mean there is they're not linked with 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 genetic information with DNA. Indeed. Indeed. They they yeah. uh, they have their own information, and yeah. it's called membrane heredity sometimes. And yes, yeah. there is nothing in the DNA of the cell that says um, go make a membrane over there. It's it's coming from the membrane that's already over there. That's where the structure of the cell is coming from. He's absolutely, well, of course he is, but he's absolutely yeah. right, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, this was fascinating for me because uh, most of the people who are working on this replication first kind of view, uh, the focusing on information, um, this is what they say that the, you know, it's the membrane formation is quite so spontaneous that, you know, you just put on some lipids, you get some vesicles and it's easy that, you know, it can get trapped and stuff. But on the other hand, there is no link that we have so far when it comes to membranes and uh, these kind of primitive processes that they... Well, they I, I have tried to, uh, with, with colleagues at UCL, tried to um, figure out that link because I keep talking about membranes powering work. Um, and, and the simplest proteins that sit in these membranes are powering CO2 fixation, which is to say they're powering growth. Um, and so you, you need a membrane and it needs to be a, an electrically charged membrane and it needs, to, um, it needs to use the difference between the outside and the inside to, to drive CO2 fixation inside, in other words, autotrophic growth. Um, so how would it do that? Well, we imagined and, and modeled it uh, computationally, but we've done experiments since which show that the, the model is actually closer to the truth than I would have imagined. Um, what we imagined was that if you if, if this is true and, and that you've got the difference between the inside and the outside can drive CO2 fixation to make organic molecules, we thought based on thermodynamics, some of these molecules, the majority would be amino acids. And a proportion of those amino acids would tend to interact with iron and sulfide minerals, growing crystals of these things. And we know that these can drive CO2 fixation. That's been shown already as an inorganic barrier. And we know that 
um, proteins like ferrodoxin, which are really important in CO2 fixation, contain little clusters of iron sulfur uh, mineral, in effect, at their heart. And so we thought, well, if we've got, if we're forming organic molecules, and they interact with iron and sulfur to produce, let's say, smaller crystals, and those smaller crystals can go to the membrane and they can help drive CO2 fixation and, and therefore growth, then physically what you're inheriting is the membrane itself and you're inheriting the crystals of iron sulfur crystals collated by organic molecules sitting in the membrane. So it's a physical form of heredity. Um, it's basically a positive feedback mechanism. The more there are there in the membrane, the more they can fix CO2 and make organic molecules. So the more you will interfere with the growth of iron sulfur minerals and the more they'll end up in the membrane. So there's a very simple positive feedback circuit there, uh, which is driven by a form of membrane heredity. So, so we started doing experiments to test whether any of this was even remotely true. And we were amazed to find that if we mix uh, the amino acid cysteine, which is the, the amino acid that normally would bind to these iron sulfur clusters in, in proteins today, with um, ferric chloride, so just a, a solution of, of oxidized iron in water, um, and, and sodium sulfide, uh, and, we, and we mix them together in the absence of any oxygen, uh, then we, we, we spontaneously form what are called 4-FE-4-S clusters. So these are exactly the same structures that we find in ferrodoxin in all these proteins that are driving CO2 fixation. It's not that we get slightly smaller crystals and slightly smaller and slightly smaller as I was expecting. We just go from a large crystal to a tiny 4-FE-4-S cluster in one step, just like that. It's amazing. Um, and, and we showed that, that they really are these, that they really are redox active, which is to say they really can transfer electrons potentially onto CO2. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's better than we thought it would be. And, and the long and short of all of that is this idea of early membrane heredity is, well, it's, let's just call it not stupid. It's, 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 it, has, it, it is partly real. Whether it can do all the work that I'm attributing to it, that's not answered yet fully. But, it, 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 you know, a, a few years worth of experiments already shows that there's more reality to it than I would have dared to imagine before we, when we started doing the modeling, you, you kind of think, well, this is, this is in silica. This is a computer model. It's not reality. It, it makes some predictions. Are those predictions possibly true? And then you do the experiments, you think, wow, actually, some of it really is true. Yeah, that's completely a, a bliss. Once, once, we, once we get that, you know, the, the, our predictions, uh, they go uh, or they are uh, correct in a way. So the um, so here let's so so basically what we've been talking about so far is that of course the information is important for life, uh, but then there is something going beyond uh, information, and according to you that's the uh, that that's fixing hydrogen and carbon in in the uh, living circle, um, uh, carbon dioxide. Mm. And this happens in the present life forms through something called Krebs cycle, but that's like just the uh, that that that's basically production of hydrogen and carbon dioxide. But then there is something called reverse Krebs cycle, yes. uh, which actually uses hydrogen and carbon dioxide and gives us products, right? So the. Most people, if they've heard of the Krebs cycle at all, or it's taught in schools a little bit, uh, anybody who does does biology or biochemistry or medicine or anything at university will be familiar with it. Um, and what they'll be familiar with it as is a, I mean, everybody 
is taught it and they forget it immediately because it's a complicated circuit of reactions that seems to be switching bits of carbon and bits of hydrogen and bits of oxygen around the place and you, you kind of get very <laughs> cross well what's it doing all of this for um and and the bottom line is what it's really doing is is um is pulling hydrogen out of these carboxylic acids uh, and, and it's passing the hydrogen into the res res respiration, as I was talking about before, uh, feeding them to oxygen. Um, and, and so the Krebs cycle is basically pulling CO2 and hydrogen out of these organic molecules, uh, the, the Krebs cycle intermediates, carboxylic acids. Now, it turned out in 1966, and it took a long time for any of this to be accepted, I mean, more than 20 years, practically a quarter of a century, that some bacteria do the do exactly the opposite of that, not quite exactly the opposite, but roughly the opposite of that. Uh, instead of stripping out hydrogen and CO2 um, and burning the hydrogen to generate energy, they're putting in CO2 and hydrogen and a bit of energy um, to make the Krebs cycle intermediates. So they're turning gases, CO2 and hydrogen, into the building blocks of life. Um, and they're doing they're doing that in exactly the same series of steps that you see in the Krebs cycle itself, with a few extra ones added in. Um, and when you think about that chemistry, the chemistry of the Krebs cycle as we know it, you think, I mean, there is some logic to it, but you you sit it there and you think, well, why is it? Why is why why do you start with glucose? And then break it down to pyruvate, and then turn pyruvate into all of these. Why do you do, do we do all of this stuff? And there's some erudite answers to it, but but they're not, you know, they don't really grab you. That's why everybody forgets the, the chemistry of the Krebs cycle again because it's so unmemorable. You're just left thinking, well, why is it like that? It's, it's madness, and I have to learn it for an exam, and I really don't like it. But then you look at you think about the reverse Krebs cycle and we're taking gases, the same gases that you find in any hydrothermal vent um, on any wet rocky planet and they're being reacted together. And I say it requires some energy, it requires this electrical charge on the membranes or the barriers um, to, to react hydrogen and CO2 to make the key building blocks of life. If you react hydrogen and CO2, you get carboxylic acids. That's what you get. And when you draw it out, you can see this is the chemistry you, you are going to get. Um, and then you realize that the structure of metabolism as we know it, if you want to make the building blocks of DNA, the letters, the nucleotides in DNA, well, we, we start from amino acids and sugars. That's, that's the starting point in modern metabolism to make the nucleotides. Um, and, and so where do the amino acids and the sugars come from? Well, they come from the Krebs cycle. They come from, they come from the Krebs cycle intermediates. You just add a bit of nitrogen to the Krebs cycle intermediates, and, and, or some of them, and, and, and you get the amino acids that are used for making nucleotides. And, and, and to make sugars, you, you know, I, I just talked about breaking it down to pyruvate. Well, pyruvate is part of the reverse Krebs cycle, and that's the basis for making ribose, for example, for RNA or deoxyribose for, for DNA. Um, so, so it's right, you know, metabolism is structured around this. And when you think about uh, metabolism starting with the gases, hydrogen and CO2, then all of it makes just beautiful, perfect sense. And instead of you thinking, why on earth is it this fiddly system with it, you know, it, it suddenly just, just smiles back at you as all practically inevitable chemistry. Um, and and it's, 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 it's quite exciting. It's exciting just from the point of view of how does life start? How does an inorganic, sterile, if you like, 
wet rocky planet come alive and you it's just got gases well those gases are reacting together to produce these molecules and a lot of this chemistry is now being done in the lab but the the other reason it's really important for us is that when we think about our own krebs cycle we realize well it's doing two jobs it's doing the job that everybody attributes to it in in the textbooks uh, which is to say it's part of energy generation in cells where stripping the hydrogen out and feeding it to oxygen and so on. But it, these Krebs cycle intermediates are still used today by us, by all animals, um, as the basic building blocks for making amino acids and for making nucleotides and, and the rest of it. So we're doing two different jobs with the Krebs cycle intermediates. We're, we're doing the energy generation side, but we're also doing the biosynthesis side. We're making the building blocks of cells from the Krebs cycle still today. And it, it's it's complex and, and it's often put aside in a separate chapter in the textbooks. We've known about all of this since Krebs himself. It's not new information. But what's really changed is, is uh, cancer over the last 10, 15 years or so. We've realized that uh, from around about 15 years ago, it was first discovered that there are mutations in the enzymes encoding Krebs cycle enzymes. Um, that, that um, sorry, in the genes that encode Krebs cycle enzymes that can cause cancer. Uh, and so people started thinking about flux through the Krebs cycle again um, as, as potentially carcinogenic. What happens if you've got a mutation here? Well, this, this intermediate accumulates and leaks out of the mitochondria and, 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 and switches off those genes and switches on those genes. And suddenly we've got a, a cancerous phenotype here. Um, so why would it be like that? Well, then you think, well, what cancer cells want to do is grow. They want to make copies of themselves. What do they need to do that? They, yes, they need some ATP, but they don't need that much ATP to make new proteins, to make new DNA, to make new membranes, everything you need as a cell. ATP is part of what you need, but not the biggest part. You need the carbon skeletons. You need the Krebs cycle intermediates. You need to make more DNA, twice as much DNA as you had before. You need to make new proteins. You need to make new membranes. So that requires the carbon skeletons, but it also requires what are called the reducing um, equivalents. You need hydrogen in the form of NADPH today. But effectively, you, you, you need to be running the Krebs cycle in reverse, pretty much like the way that uh, bacteria in, in deep sea hydrothermal vents have been doing it for three billion years or something. Um, so you, you begin to look at the structure of metabolism with this strain on the Krebs cycle in mind and, 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 and the way that cancer cells are stripping these intermediates to power their growth. Uh, you see it in a very different light. And when you realize that this is the same chemistry that's been uh, uh, working in life over billions of years, so why is it that we are more prone to getting cancer as we get older and we begin to get damage to respiration and, and we slow down a little bit? Well, the Krebs cycle begins to shift its direction and, and, and its use is beginning to change. We begin to put on weight. We begin to become more at risk of cancer and so on. So it's, um, it's a shift in the metabolic potential of cells uh, as we get older. Um, and, and so all of this material about the origin of life and, and, and how ancient bacteria work to fix CO2 through photosynthesis suddenly is relevant to why we get cancer. Um, and, and the book is, is about putting these two halves together. And what about recycling of mitochondria? Because it's not like, first of all, it's not like we have only one mitochondria. There are like thousands of them. And then these mitochondria also undergo kind of uh, cell death in a way. 
um uh, and uh, what i because i also did one conversation with uh, a doctor dr robert lustig who wrote a book on uh, uh, metabolical is is uh, t- title of the book and he talks about one of the aspect is why we gain weight etc is this um, mitochondria dysfunction in a way that um, our cells they tend to accumulate a lot of bad mitochondria uh, uh, which should be recycled and till the time we don't uh, take a shock or something or give a shock to our body you know through exercise fasting or maintaining our food intake etc um it doesn't uh, recycle those mitochondria it just preserves them somehow so w- what about what's uh, that factor yeah so there's a resource use question here um and and it goes back a long way in biology about in effect we 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 know that um you can uh, that an organism has a choice with the resources it's got of investing more in 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 sexual maturation or or finding a partner or producing offspring or whatever it may be i'm not thinking about humans so much as just life in general animals uh, and so on but it's a, it's a kind of a general pattern in biology or you can invest more resources in staying alive for longer which takes away from the resources you're investing in sex and puts more into staying alive into into a stress response for example into dealing with a, a, an environment that's not a, not a happy environment to be in if you like um and calorie restriction has been known for a long time to be a way of extending lifespan it's equivocal whether it really works in humans but it certainly works a little bit in in some rhesus monkeys for example and it works very well in things like mice so the more complicated complex we get and larger we get the harder it is to make it work but one of the things that is noticed with calorie restriction is it tends to suppress sexuality and and and, and the number of offspring that you're going to have um but there are various other ways of doing it it's not always a, a a strict relationship that the more investment you put into longevity the less you put into sex or vice versa but there is at the level of the krebs cycle and flux through the krebs cycle there is this question do i want to be investing in um in growth which is to say sexual maturation so i'm using the krebs cycle primarily for the intermediates to power my growth and to bulk up and to make proteins and so on or do i want to use it primarily for energy generation and doing work and that work includes autophagy uh, and the breakdown of cells and the breakdown of mitochondria and so on so how how do i want as a as a species as an, as an organism a population of organisms you know how long am i likely to live anyway if you're a if you're a house mouse or something um you're small you've got a fast metabolic rate you you're vulnerable to predators you know if you make an investment decision that i'm not going to have any offspring for at least the first 5 years well the chances of you being living to 5 years old is virtually zero so it's a bad decision it'd be much better to invest much more in in reproduction earlier on so this is a standard kind of evolutionary equation but it boils down at the level of the krebs cycle to the decision on is this flux going to go this way or that way or how much is going to come in here and out there how much you know there, there are real structural constraints on metabolism that are saying you can't do both things at once all the time so well um there's only certain ways that you can do it at the level of the wiring of metabolism um and and then the other thing that i think is very easy to overlook we all know it we're all taught it but we easily forget it because we can't see it 
is the number of metabolic reactions going on at any one moment. We're talking between a billion and 20 billion, maybe 30 billion reactions every second. It's an extraordinary number. Second after second, you know, as I'm saying this, 100 billion reactions just happened um, in one of my cells. And you, I've, got, you know, I've got 40 trillion cells and each one of those just did, did uh, you know, 100 trillion reactions in the time I was saying that. It, it, it's just, it's incomprehensible. Um, so how much investment do you put into getting all of those reactions exactly right so they always work? And, and, and what I'm falling back on here really is, is an old fashioned and slightly outdated thermodynamic idea that um, stuff goes wrong over time. And, and this is a tremendous amount of stuff that's happening. And it's amazing that we live as long as we do really, uh, but we accumulate damage over time. And I think this is one of the themes from aging research. A lot of people working on diseases of aging and so on uh, will recognize the uh, you know damaged proteins, accumulation of damage, and and they should be turned over. And they can be turned over through processes like autophagy and so on. So what's going wrong? Why are they not in the end turned over? Well, there are these tipping points that I've been talking about. There's, as we accumulate damage in respiration. Um, then the, the flux through the Krebs cycle and which genes are switched on and which genes are switched off and the activation state of the cell, if you like, we, we're, we're, cells are flipping to something approximating to a senescent state as we get older. And a lot of it is linked to flux through the Krebs cycle and all the signaling that comes from that. And that signaling is more or less saying, um, don't, don't break down those broken mitochondria don't break down this kind of damaged endoplasmic reticulum let's just grow instead it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a the signal is wonky the signal is wonky because damage has accumulated damage accumulates because of all of this metabolism that's going on so fast that it's practically impossible to stop it accumulating um, and, and so we end up with a with a, with a, with a signaling system that's reflecting some level of damage in the system and which is then switching on the wrong set of genes. It's doing that because the flux through the Krebs cycle is shifting in the direction that says grow rather than the direction that, that says repair. And that's, uh, that's, that's about are you using the Krebs cycle for energy generation, which you can equate with repair, or for growth, for using the intermediates for powering the growth of cells, which to a, to a first approximation, you can say, forget about repair, just make more of me. And that's why cancer is, you know, it's something like 100 times more likely by the time you've got into your 50s compared to when you're in your 20s. Um, and, and, and the risk goes up, you know, it doubles every 10 years or something. You know, my, my risk will, will have doubled by the time I'm 60 something. Um, it's to do with age. It's not to do with the rate of accumulation of mutations. It's to do with the way that the system is working and the signaling is working. And that in the end is down to metabolism and not genes. I mean, definitely we can't stop that process, but can we slow it down? Uh, are you working on aging also, or uh, do you have- um, uh... A little bit. It's not really my main interest. Uh, I'm working with people um, who on flies, for example, and the way that mitochondria work in, 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 in Drosophila and that touches on aging. Um, and they're very, very interesting questions. Um, I, I don't, I'm not really an expert on that by any means, but, being an expert is not always the best thing to be. 
I think sometimes wandering and blundering around in the undergrowth of the, the kind of thickets of how do things relate to each other. Um, you know, you're ignorant about a lot and you, you're, you're wrong about a lot, but you, you see shapes and patterns that maybe an expert might have overlooked because they're, they're not blundering around in the undergrowth wondering how things fit together. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember now again uh, the story of Peter Mitchell, what you wrote in the book. Uh, it was something similar that he was focusing, he was more focused on philosophy of bacteria or something that. Uh, Yes. So that's yeah. So it's it seems like I mean it's a, it's, it's a it's a it's a common pattern really that uh, a lot of breakthroughs in the history of science have been made by people who came from outside the field, and the the in a way the less you know the more likely to ask the childlike questions you are. <laughs> Why is it like this? Um, and, and 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 you know just framing those questions is part of the way to answer them. Um, and the more you know about something, the harder it is to see with fresh eyes. Uh, the harder it is to come up with something really creative and original and unusual and different. Uh, and that goes, for, I think, for, you know, it's a human thing. It goes for all of us. The more you know about something, you may as well say the more jaded we become. Uh, and this is, a, you know, it, there's a practical side to it. Um, when I have new PhD students starting they tend to be encouraged to go and do a literature review, learn everything you can know about this subject and then work out what you're going to do that's new. And I don't, I don't think, I think it's completely the wrong way to do it because it, it's so off-putting. It's so overwhelming. There's so much information out there. You read all of this stuff and you think, well, everything that's possible to know is already known and I am, I am very inadequate and, and uh, I, I have no contribution to make. I, I think I just will forget my PhD and go and go and sell ice cream instead or something I don't know <laughs> um I did have a one student who went and became a circus performer and I really really kind of think what a brave decision um but it's kind of symbolic in a way and the problem is people get overwhelmed um now if you are talking about the blundering around in the undergrowth and not knowing too much asking naive questions that leads to you know how do you test this naive question what can I? What, what kind of an experiment can I do here? What kind of a, what kind of kit do I have access to that I can do this naive experiment? And 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 so you you know you 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 end up doing things, and and then you look at the literature and you think, oh oh, this was all done twenty years ago by someone, but they didn't do this, and I did that, and the results I get are different to theirs. And then suddenly you look at the literature in a different way, and you realise that well, no, everything hasn't been done already, and people make decisions about what to do. And when you write a paper, you write it in, in a way that pretends to be foolproof so you can get the editors to accept it. And, you know, it's not, it's riddled with holes. Every paper is riddled with holes. Um, our knowledge is very fallible. Uh, and um, it's a much more productive way not to know too much and to go on asking the naive questions. And I think that's why so many breakthroughs are made by people from outside the field who come in and wander around without knowing very much, asking the most interesting questions. Yeah, I mean, it's not a naive question, but one of, I think, one of the great statements that I read in your book, uh, to quote you, it's, I suspect that 21st century biology will be the biology of fields, uh, which is really interesting. I mean, so of course, you talk about um, electric potential on the membranes, and that's being the electrical fields in a way. And um, I had a, a conversation with Michael Levin, who talks about bioelectricity. Yes, okay. 
yes. and you've been talking about his work as well um so what are the other fields that you you think it's mainly uh, the electrical fields electromagnetic fields i'm thinking electromagnetic fields um how real this is i honestly don't know um but i think it probably is so i mean we know you know the the eeg the electroencephalogram in the brain or the ecg in the heart and so on we know that it reflects electrical activity and, and changes in voltage and these are on a quite a large scale uh, and so they involve networks of cells, hundreds, thousands of cells involved in a single electrical change that we could measure with a probe from outside. Um, but we don't have a very clear idea of exactly which bits of all these hundreds of cells that are cooperating together to produce a, a, some kind of a change in voltage, change in fields that we can measure, which bits of the cells are doing that. Um, and I would not have thought about this really at all, except for some, I think, beautiful work from Luca Turin, who won't agree with everything I'm saying about this, but let me just say what he, he says first. Um, he, he is interested in the, the, the mechanism of general anesthetics, volatile anesthetics. Uh, and and um, he has shown that, um, for example, gases like xenon, which is an inert gas, act as a general anesthetic. So it's not because of their chemistry, really, because they don't have, it's an inert gas, they don't have any chemistry. And it's not because of their shape that they're fitting into some receptor. And actually this has been a problem for a long time in the field of general anesthesia. All these general anesthetics have completely different shapes and structures. And there's no obvious pattern to it, except they tend to be lipid soluble and they tend to accumulate in membranes. Um, and so Luca Turin had, had shown that um, general anesthetics um, interfere with the transfer of electrons to oxygen. Now that doesn't prove that it's a direct causal relationship. It could be that they're, they're interfering with the transfer of electrons to oxygen. So respiration and the charge on the membranes. And obviously that's going to affect the energy available to the central nervous system. And so any process that generates consciousness is going to be uh, affected by that. So it's, this is not a causal proof, but um, what it's saying suddenly is that here's a here's here's a, a gas that's not doing anything else. It's xenon, uh, and it's directly interfering with the transfer of electrons to oxygen. And we've already established that there are these electrical patterns uh, in the EEG and so on, which are reflecting our conscious state of, of mind in one way or another. It's different when we're asleep. It's different if we're under a general anaesthetic and so on. Um, and the other thing which I, I would say has changed in recent years is um, the realization that these are not epiphenomena, which is to say, this is not uh, a, 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 a side effect of um, the, the real activity of neurons, that they can't do anything themselves. They're just a kind of a, an epiphenomenon. Um, because if you cut an, an axon, and you separate the two parts by about 40, up to 40 micrometers, um, then, then an action potential which is coming down here can just hop over that gap as if it didn't exist. And it's not because, they, uh, because there's uh, neurotransmitters crossing the gap or anything, they, they're not that fast. It's as if that gap doesn't exist at all. It's an electrical hop. Um, it's done by electrical fields. And what that says is that electrical fields are not unable to do anything. They're not unable to make work happen. It can power the transmission 
of a, an electrical potential down a neuron just through the field. So, so fields will do work um, and they're interfered with through general anesthetics and general anesthetics interfere with the transfer of electrons to oxygen. And mitochondria are, are um, they're inside cells, inside neurons, but a neuron, the, the, the membrane on a neuron, the plasma membrane of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an axon, um, the membrane potential has been measured over decades. It's in the order of 60, maybe 80 millivolts uh, between the inside and the outside. Whereas the mitochondrial membranes are potentially twice that. They, they may be 150 up to 200 millivolts. Uh, now, that's, that's a problematic statement because nobody has ever measured it using a microelectrode in the way that people have with the neuron. We measure it using dyes instead, which accumulate according to charge. But there's all kinds of problems with the use of these dyes, and we don't really know what they're telling us, and we don't really know how to calibrate them. Um, and mitochondria are not at all the kind of open, semi-open system that they're often drawn as in a textbook. And when you, if you insert a microelectrode into a mitochondrion, the, the people have done this. Tedeschi was doing this in the 90s or earlier. Uh, and they've never measured anything more than about 10 millivolts, 10, 20 millivolts at the most. Calling into question the whole of uh, chemiosmotic coupling and Peter Mitchell's hypothesis and so on. Um, so are they right? They're good scientists. They're doing serious work. They, they, I, I believe the measurements that they've made. So what have they measured? Well, I think what they've measured is the difference between the mitochondrial matrix, which is the main part of the mitochondria where you would insert your electrode. And they, they would inject dyes through these electrodes and they, and they go into the matrix. And the cytosol, which is to say outside the mitochondria. But where all these protons are being pumped is into what's called the Christie space, which is not continuous with the rest of the, turns out now, is not continuous with the rest of the um, of the inner mitochondrial membrane, but it's a closed space and it's a very narrow space and protons are being pumped into there, which means that the charge on those membranes is where all that charge really is. Uh, and, and it's hard to measure and no one has ever succeeded in measuring it unequivocally. Um, but it almost certainly is in the region of 180 millivolts and it's in that space. Now, the other things that have changed is that this closed Christie where all the protons are going, at the end of it is bent by dimers of the ATP synthase. So they sit at the end there and they bend the membrane. Um, and all the rest of the pumps, the respiratory complexes that are pumping protons into this space, uh, they're on the side walls. So we now have a circuit of protons which are going up to the ATPase dimers at the top and, and then back down and being pumped through and up. And so we've, we've got a, 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 a current of protons going on. We also have a current of electrons going to, to oxygen, but I suspect it's the protons that are doing the work here. And we have parallel Christie potentially, each one with uh, an oscillating current of protons um, which could be in phase and could generate electromagnetic fields. This is where Luca Turin begins to doubt the, whether or not these fields are really doing any work. He may be right, I don't know. I mean, it's practically impossible to say at the moment because all of what I'm telling you is quite new, quite difficult to measure and right at the edge of what would be respectable science. Um, you mentioned Michael Levin. He's been showing over the last 10 years or so that 
that uh, development of many animals, he's shown it beautifully on flatworms, um, planaria, but, but uh, it's, it's more broad than that, is determined by a, a language which we hardly know at the moment of electrical fields, which effectively tell cells what to develop into and how long to keep growing and replicating and so on. And he's done amazing work. Uh, I mean, gobsmackingly beautiful work. Uh, showing that these fields are controlling development. Um, so we, we really do know now that electrical fields or electromagnetic fields are, 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 are influencing the environment in which cells are behaving, how they grow, how they, when they stop growing. Uh, now, what's, what, what if these fields are coming from mitochondria and are being amplified by mitochondria? You may say, well, why even bother thinking that way? Why, why, why single out mitochondria? I've said it's because they, there's many more membranes. They, they're parallel very often. They can, in principle, generate these fields which could operate over distances, perhaps as far as the plasma membrane and interfere with the charges on the membrane. Um, but why? why? Why the mitochondria? Um, well, remember, they were bacteria once. And when they were bacteria, this the membrane that we're talking about, the charged membrane, was the plasma membrane uh, facing the outside world. And so it's uh, how a bacteria is behaving depends on um, the Krebs cycle again. It depends on is hydrogen being fed into the Krebs cycle, or have we run out of supplies? Are we uh, are we starving? Um, is there enough oxygen to burn this stuff in? Do I need to grow? Are my requirements for growth okay? You know, all of these, I said a billion reactions a second of metabolism happening inside a single bacterial cell. All of this stuff is happening um, across the cell. How, do, how does one end of the cell know what the other end of the cell is doing? It's not, you know, we're talking about picoseconds here. We're talking about, you know, Picosecond by picosecond by picosecond, something over there knows what's happening over here. How? If we're talking in the language of fields, then it begins to make sense. All of this metabolism in the end is structured through the Krebs cycle to charge a membrane. And the membrane, the charge on that membrane is going to tell you in effect uh, how I am doing in relation to the environment. Have I got enough substrate? Have I got enough oxygen? Have I got enough food? Have I got a, you know, um, is my respiratory chain functional? Do I have a, you know, a good charge that's going to allow me to do the next thing I want to do? Or have I, you know, just collapsed it a little bit and need to move over there? So it, it integrates a cell as a single unit and it tells you how you're doing right now in relation to the outside world. And that seems to me to be what you would want the simplest form of consciousness to do. So I'm not saying it's an awareness, or at least not an awareness that you're aware so much as um, an integrated circuit at the level of living cells, bacteria included, which tells you how you're doing, whether you're comfortable or uncomfortable. If you look at the work of um, Mark Soames and, and Carl Friston, for example, they talk about Friston free energy, and they're looking at it in terms of homeostasis. Uh, so and at the level of a single cell, what I'm talking about really is homeostasis. How do you know if you're in the right state or if you're in an uncomfortable state? Well, you know from the charge on the membrane and from the fields that are being generated by that membrane, am I in a homeostatically low free energy state and comfortable? Or am I in a kind of a uncomfortable high energy state that I need to move over there or do something different? Um, 
And so why the electrical charges from mitochondria? Because they were bacteria once and because these are what they're telling bacteria how to respond to their world. So what I'm suggesting the central nervous system has done is effectively use this as a unit of currency for what a feeling is, for, for telling you how you're doing in relation to the world. And then, and, and then you know, a, a complex central nervous system is enormously amplified. Um, but we still don't know, can't agree, what feelings are. We, we know how neural networks might compute things. And, and Roger Penrose for a long time has said, consciousness is not a computation. This is more of a kind of a state. How am I doing in relation to the world? This is what feelings are. Um, they're, they're the state that you're in, uh, kind of real-time feedback on state in a language which is not the language of computation. Uh, and I think it's the language of mitochondrial fields, which is which is basically telling you how am I doing in relation to the outside world, in relation to the homeostasis of this bit of the system, and how those bits then the fields link up and strengthen each other and, and, and give you a kind of an integrated feedback on right now. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, uh, one of the best um, explanation that I have read for consciousness, in especially thinking from the biochemistry point of view. Um, and uh, so one thing which also came uh, when I was talking to uh, Michael Levin about reductionism in it, itself, right? Like how deep we can go when it comes to uh, these kind of electrical fields, et cetera. Um, because I asked him, like, if we go at the receptor level, we should be able to then uh, get some information out that how these, uh, like how probably those single receptors, they are contributing to uh, electrical fields. But then his idea was that, maybe um, after like at a certain point, we can't like reduce the system anymore. This is something- I, I think it's almost the opposite of reduction, which is to say it's an integration. It's, um, I say we have a, a billion metabolic reactions happening every second. Um, and if you were to shrink yourself down to the size of a molecule, and I finished the book this way, to the size of, a, let's say an ATP molecule or something, um, and, then, and, and, and then imagine the cell the other side of the cell would be like the other side of London from where I am at the moment, 20 miles away over there. And there's other molecules like people, if you like, over there. What is what is going to unite the people over there doing something or other with, the, with me over here doing what I'm doing? How do I know now what they are doing over there? Because I do. Because, you know, the way that a cell works... Um, the metabolism is, is is kind of unified pretty much across the cell. Well, if you're dealing with the Krebs cycle and the Krebs cycle is involved in pumping and that produces a charge and that charge is across the entire membrane um, and that's generating a field and that field is affecting the way that molecules behave, then, then we have an answer. The answer is easy to say. It's much more difficult to demonstrate. And uh, you know, there's an awful lot to do with the structure of water that we don't understand very well and how the fields might work. But the, the real key point is that it's, it's not about one pump. It's about the charge on the entire surface of the cell uh, and how that changes with the input of all the different things that are all directly inputting into it. So it's giving you a kind of an integrated um, feedback on how all of this metabolic system is, is doing right now as a, as a single unit, as a single cell with a charge on the membrane. And it's saying, I'm all right or I'm not all right. 
uh, and that seems to me to be the kind of the, the simplest imaginable unit of what uh, a feeling is. I feel like I'm all right, or I feel like I'm stressed um, as, as a cell. So I don't think that trying to measure it at the level of single pumps, single proteins is the right way of seeing it. It's really about how do you integrate a whole load of individual entities of, of molecules, of proteins, of genes, and this entire network that of, of, of systems regulation. How does this system know what that system's doing? Well, here's a here's a way of, you know, you, you can't pump against a high membrane potential. There isn't the energy to do it, which means this system has to close down. And, you know, you, you're, it's more or less keeping everything in the same phase. Yeah, and about the consciousness part, so uh, how this anesthesia affects uh, membrane of mitochondria or um, or bacteria, for example, uh, are there any experiments? Uh, well, there are um, there there are for simple things like flies, uh, even paramecium and plants. I'm told can be anesthetized as well. I don't actually know how you can tell if a plant is anesthetized, but. Um, Bacteria, I imagine it's possible to do so as well on exactly the same grounds, but I'm not aware of anybody who's gone out anesthetizing bacteria. Maybe that's what I should be trying to do. Um, and, and, and I think it's very, you know, I, I've noticed that a lot of people get quite angry about some of these ideas. Um, and I think they're, they're misunderstanding what I'm trying to say. And some people are going to be angry anyway, because God did it. And, and any attempt at a materialistic explanation of consciousness is going to offend some people. Um, but other people think that, uh, oh, no, I've got a very naive view of what consciousness is. Uh, and I'm not trying to explain human consciousness or the loops of awareness of being aware and so on. I mean, there's, you know, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to belittle the complexity of human awareness and consciousness. What, what I think the question for a biochemist is, is what is a feeling? How is it that a depolarizing neuron gives rise to a feeling of love or pain or anger? Um, what is a feeling in biochemical terms? So I can, I can see how a computational system, how an AI type intelligence would be capable in principle of surpassing human intelligence. I don't know if it really can or not, but but it seems to be, you know, if we're, if we're talking about neural circuitry, neural networks as being the basis for computation um, and, and all our decisions are computational decisions about how the world works, then it's very easy to imagine that in principle it would be possible to design a, a computer system which is capable of equal um, processing power uh, and in a probably a, a, a parallel kind of way. Um, but it would be very difficult for us to know if that system would be conscious would would experience pain or love or melancholy or you know the, the things that actually matter more to us as humans it, it would it would be a terrible thing if if our feelings and our emotions and the qualia uh in in our lives were taken away and we became a zombie that's you know zombie is one of the most painful words that you can hear mm -hmm. um but you know, a, a zombie you've not taken away anything. You know, they, they're capable of the same informational processing, just not the feelings in in, in the same way. Um, so, so I think there's, there's, there's this. You can understand how a computational system can do an awful lot of information processing, but to try to understand where emotions are coming from, 
there seem to be two broad ideas. One of them is it's just an emergent property of a sufficiently complex central nervous system. And I think a lot of the AI community would rather see it that way because they have a romantic view that they can construct a machine that will just come alive in all sense of the word and become conscious and suffer pain and, and, and you know, existential crisis, you might say. I don't know if we want an AI to have an existential crisis, but... Um, and it may be true, I can't say it's wrong, but but at no point do I really grasp, so what is this thing called a feeling then? And the other one is more a property of physics, a property of matter, some unknown law of physics, and that would tend to suggest that a stone is, is capable of some really low-grade form of consciousness, or the sun is in some way. And I just find that unpersuasive as well. It seems to me that it's a property of living things, and again, there will be people who say there's a conscious field across the universe and you know i'm just lacking imagination and maybe they're right i you know i but that's not how i see the world i see the world in quite simplistic terms and i tend to think that i you know i think dogs are clearly conscious i think that uh, elephants are and octopuses are and i can imagine that a fly is um and not to anything like the same grade and not with self-awareness and not with most of the things that we would think of as human consciousness but is it possible for you know a fox to experience pain yes i think it is uh, i think that's a meaningful concept is it possible for a drosophila to experience pain probably no longer in a way that we would understand it but yes i'm sure it's possible for a drosophila to be less happy than another one um, to, to have some unpleasant feeling um, what about bacteria then you know, the further away we get from a complex organism, the, the less we can relate to it. But is it is there a difference between bacterium, which is clearly doing well and with a nice buzzing membrane potential and one which has uh, just been infected by a virus and is deciding to pull the plug on its membrane potential? I could imagine that in terms of fields, in terms of the integration of the cell as a unit, that yes, that would that would feel like something. I'm I'm feeling well or I'm feeling ill in, in effect. Um, so, so in terms of this biochemistry, central biochemistry question, and neuron depolarizes and gives rise to a feeling of something. What is a feeling in physical terms? My answer to that would be it's to do with the with the fields which have been selected over over you know billions and billions of generations going back to the earliest forms of life uh, to to signify your state in the world in relation to the, uh, the the external world, am I doing all right, or am I as a as a as a kind of an entity doing badly? Um, it, it seems to have selective utility that way. It's, I can imagine natural selection acting on this unit of of the cell that that is capable of altering its behaviour as a result of sensing the environment through a system which is integrating the, the cell as a unit. I can see all of that in quite materialistic, selective terms. Um, doesn't mean any of it's right. It's just a way of seeing the question. Well, it's. I think it's a great way because, I mean, um, if we are saying that there are four books written with the title, What is Life? There are 60 books written where the title is, or at least the word consciousness exists in the title. So oh, and still, hundreds, we don't, yes. <laughs> and still we don't have, I think, a clue to like how to really address the question. So it is 
they, yes they i mean i think the thing is that everybody means something different by by the word and everybody focuses on something different and it's almost infinitely complex and and um it's very easy to focus on your own view and and i am focusing on my own view as a biochemist about what 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 is this what is the simplest possible unit of feeling um and 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 that seems to me to be a coherent story uh but there's there's a phrase I, I use in the book as well um, that there's you know many a beautiful ideas being killed by an ugly fact, uh, and there are plenty of ugly facts around. And, and actually, one of the nice things about writing books and being in the lab is that specific idea. You know, you, you have a general approach. Energy is important, and I, I'm sure that that is broadly true. But beyond that approach there's lots of little predictions and and those little predictions you're testing them all the time and half the time I'm, more than half the time i'm wrong <laughs> it's very humbling it's very you know it's grounding you you constantly finding that what you thought was the right answer here is actually the opposite it doesn't mean the whole idea falls down but it means that you've got to keep thinking you've got to keep rethinking you're now in this corner over here can i get out of the corner or do i throw in the towel and say the idea was wrong the hypothesis was wrong um it's, it's great fun being wrong, um, and it's really constructive because it forces you to keep thinking. And being doing experiments and trying to test things means that you're constantly being wrong, you're constantly having to change, you're constantly having to rethink and to try and puzzle out. Something's not as I thought it was. I'm too simplistic. you know. I, I, I think the simple things, it turns out they're wrong, so I try and think, well, is the whole idea wrong or is there a slightly more complex way of seeing the same thing that explains it? And that's how you make progress. Um, whereas if all you, the, I think that's the best explanation of scientific method, you know, that being also aware that you are wrong, but admitting it that, you know, that you're wrong and correcting yourself to kind of, uh, with, with the, I think it evidence. takes some time to live with, to yeah. live with that. And, and in some way, the more established you are, it, perhaps it gets easier to say I'm wrong about this and I'm wrong about that. But in another way, maybe not. You know, the, the bigger your reputation, the harder you fall, you might say. So I think it's really important for all scientists. I think this is the perhaps the single most important thing about the scientific method insofar as there is one at all. It's that you test things and when you're wrong, you're the first person to say I'm wrong. And especially if you were you know people get passionate about things and say things they perhaps would regret having said and and then i think you should also be the first person to say i'm sorry i got that wrong um it would, it would have been nice if there was more of that during the covid time we tended to shout at each other and <laughs> and, and, and not apologize when we were wrong uh, i think it's you know science as a method should be objective we have to have imagination we have to have creativity we have to be wrong we have to test these ideas and we have to be the first person to say well <laughs> i screwed that one up <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so uh, when we are talking about these ideas the one thing that i've been thinking of so in general i mean of course in biology uh, when we are moving also in chemistry a lot of understanding that it comes from physics as well and um, our current biology is based on uh, classical mechanics, uh, if, we, if we think of. And I mean, of course, now what is going on in physics, especially with the quantum field theory, et cetera, it's another uh, level. Absolutely, yes. But we need to kind of also, especially as biochemists, we need to address that question. I mean, um, the, the last decade marks, again, the first book on quantum biology. 
uh, mm-hmm. by Jamal Khalili and mm-hmm. I forgot the other co-author. John Jamal Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what what are your thoughts on thinking of these, these kind of uh, electrical fields um, and quantum uh, biology or quantum field theory? Do you think that we need, uh, like somehow we are still limited in our systems and we need to evolve our systems with the uh, updated physics somehow? I, I think it's it's a, it's a tricky question. I, I mean, I am certain that there's a whole language of biology that's linked to electrical fields. I, I think that's unequivocal from Michael Levin's work, but other people's work as well. Um, and I don't think we really quite have the kit or the vocabulary to understand it yet. But it's also, you know, the, the, there's lots of knowledge of birds using electromagnetic fields to navigate of uh, bacteria do the same kind of thing using magnetosomes um, we know about fish and electric currents and electric eels you know there's, there's, there's in zoology there's a lot of knowledge and awareness of the role that electricity plays in biology and, and Peter Mitchell and Jennifer Moyle and the mitochondria we thought in terms of an electrical potential on a membrane but not in terms of electrical fields or electromagnetic fields so much uh, and that was partly because we didn't, it requires a very specific morphology. You, if you've got two Christi and they're set at an angle to each other and they've both got oscillating electrical currents going on, then the fields would interfere with each other. So it requires, it requires uh, and cancel each other. So it, requ- it requires quite specific morphological um, structures for any of this to work. But before you can even begin to look into those things, you have to have an open enough mind to say, well, okay, um, fields could be important, should be important. But the irony there is, uh, you know, fields go back to Faraday. Um, It's not really about quantum mechanics. Um, There's lots of things which are linked to quantum mechanics in biology. Respiration itself, I talked about electrons hopping down the respiratory chain, like frogs hopping from a lily pad to a lily pad, but actually they're quantum tunneling. And the distance, the distances over which so, uh, the, the redox centers are separated, has clearly been selected. It's rarely more than about 10, 12, 15 angstroms, and that's what—that's the distance that allows quantum tunneling of electrons. I think there's there's whole areas. How many redox? You know, complex one is a strange thing. There's there's nine redox centers, iron sulfur clusters in in complex one. Why are there so many? Nobody really knows the answer to that, but. If quantum tunneling is real, which it is, and if an electron that sits on this center has a certain probability of being here, and if it's there, a certain probability of being here or there or wherever else, then it's effectively there's a resonance space where that electron could be anywhere on that chain. Um, And that has to affect the likelihood of another. If, If this electron is here for sure, then putting another electron here is going to be harder than if that electron is smeared in space between all the centers. So you can have a redox tuning of a, of a whole, and you know, this is an area of biology. I'm just saying it may be possible. I don't know if it's real or not. I raise it with people who work on bioenergetics regularly and we talk about these things and you know, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. Is that quantum? It probably is, but it's somewhere between classical and quantum. I'm just reading a really good book at the moment by Philip Ball. Um, called Beyond Beyond Weird, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is talking about the influence of the environment on decoherence. Uh, and it seems that these ideas that he's talking about, the book's a few years old now, but it seems that um, there's, there's recent work. He mentioned it to me, and I don't know exactly what he has in mind, but um, 
it's the role of the environment in, in producing decoherence and, and effectively the collapse of the, of the wave function. Um, if that's true, the environment is a really difficult thing to get rid of in biology, and that, to my mind, would probably limit what quantum effects are possible or not possible. Um, I don't doubt that they're real and they're, they're, they're there and they're used by biology, but um, I, I think it was probably easy to, to just say, oh, anything's possible, and you know, quantum, you know, it tends to be one of those words that people jump on and then sit smugly on thinking anything's possible now as a quantum. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, I think we need to be rigorous about it. Um, and, and I think we have a lot to learn about how these systems really work. Uh, I, I think fields are somewhere between quantum and, 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 and classical, uh, and I think they are real. They don't suffer from decoherence problems, but they have other issues, which is to say they need to reinforce each other um, to, to have any chance of signaling over, 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 reinforcing each other and signal to say the plasma membrane, which is quite a way away if we're thinking about the distance over which uh, electromagnetic fields are operating when we have so few charges involved. So, I, you know, everything I'm saying, I, I think we don't know the answer to. Uh, and I think biology is thrilling from this point of view. It's the intersection of physics with biology um, where we just don't know most of the answers at the moment. And, and we, we know some stuff, but there's, there's a whole world out there, which is a wonderful world, which we know very little about yet. Uh, and I, I, that's why I say I think the 21st century is going to be the, the, the biology of fields. I, I, I think that's, that's the direction of travel. Definitely. And actually, I've been thinking of, uh, you know, a uh, lot of chaos, randomness, luck, chance, you know, these things that we, we call environment, uh, that we call, uh, you know, that we consider it, but not to that extent, especially in biology. And um, then again, linked to complexity and all the all these factors, um, we need to, I think, also address these kind of issues, right? Like how these chance events occur and like what is their contribution in terms of building up these systems, et cetera. And I was thinking that maybe it's uh, it's limited somewhere in the chemistry, but I don't see any um, also like something interesting coming out of uh, those explanations. So the only explanation that I could find is probably at the physics level, which can really uh, change our understanding of biology. But I don't know, again, as you said, that these are all speculations. Yes, but I don't like the word speculation very much. It's true. <laughs> Um, but people use the word speculation to dismiss it as hand-waving and, and, and basically lacking in any kind of scientific substance. Uh, and I would say that a hypothesis is a speculation. A hypothesis is a flight of fancy into the unknown. But what makes it science is that you name the steps and you say, if this is so, then this should be so, and I can test it like that. Uh, and then it becomes science. And th this, is, this is something that also uh, applies very strongly to the origin of life. You need to name the steps and you need to test them. And where we have a long continuum from very simple prebiotic chemistry all the way through to complex molecular machines and so on, it really matters what's the order in which you get there from here. What comes first, genes or metabolism and so on. And so specify what do you think happens and then how does it get to the next step and what's the next step and, and, and how do we test those steps and how do we put all this together? Um, very different predictions come out of it. You could say the whole lot is speculation. And in some sense it is, but it's also a hypothesis 
I think we're a long, long way from creating life in the lab, personally, um, in terms of life that, that anybody who uh, just had a kind of an unbiased view of what a living system actually is would recognize as life. It may be that someone can say, oh, I've created life in the lab. And what they actually mean is they've got something which is capable of making a rudimentary copy of itself and growing a bit. And, you know, most people say, well, it's not alive, is it? <laughs> so to come up with something resembling a cell, I think we're a long, long way from doing that. And I don't think there's really any danger of it happening in my lifetime. But um, to understand how life could have emerged, to piece together a coherent story that intellectually goes from one step to the next step to the next step, all the way through to cells with molecular machines and genes, and to have tested virtually all of those steps and demonstrated that under some set of conditions, it really does work, which then turns it from just speculation into, let's say, a, 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 you know, a, a hypothesis that's got some meat on the bone that, that it might be true because you've demonstrated that the individual steps are possible doesn't mean that they can all join up together and do what you said they could do, but it just means that intellectually I can begin to believe that this is not just a piece of make-believe, this is not a figment of my imagination, but the, the individual steps are possibly real. Um, and I think that's kind of the best we can do in a way. Maybe people might find that disappointing, but I, I find it quite thrilling because what it means is that I think we can understand intellectually with enough substance to say that everything I'm calling on here is possible and is real and is not a flight of fancy, uh, how a, a non-living, sterile, inorganic planet can give rise to the living planet that we see around us. It's a wonderful challenge to try to explain, to try to understand. I think we, the best we can do is to have some kind of sketchy understanding of how it came about that makes coherent intellectual sense, which has been tested and demonstrated that it's not incoherent so i had another conversation uh this was with eddie pross again on uh -huh. okay. origin of life and uh when i asked him okay what 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 are we trying to do here when we are uh, uh trying to address origin of life question and his idea or his explanation was that we are just looking for uh chemical laws chemical and physical laws which can uh, give us an explanation or which will uh, tell us simply uh, that, okay, if we follow these laws, we can create kind of this synthetic life in the, in the lab. Um, again, it's, it's abstract, but. Yes. I mean, that's not a million miles away from what I just said. Yes. And yes, in principle, if you follow them, you could do that. But in practice, um, the kind of, the kind of a, what you can do in a lab, you can test one reaction and you can test it over a short period of time. You, you know, you can't leave it for extended periods of time and you may get the, the conditions a little bit wrong or the ions, you know, we're always simplifying a complex system. And you think about the kind of hydrothermal vents that I'm really talking about. Um, and, and they're on a large scale. They, they can be 60 meters tall. They're you know, networks of interconnected micropores with fluids continually moving through them with complex chemistry, all kinds of mineralogy, mineralogy that, that's in there, uh, all kinds of complex chemistry in the oceans, all kinds of ions that are in there. And, and four billion years ago, before the crust had differentiated from the mantle, probably the whole seafloor would have been doing this kind of chemistry. So we have a planet-wide laboratory where the chemistry that's happening is broadly similar but differing in every place in, in many chemical details. Over as many million years as you want it to happen, I would rather think in terms of 
nanoseconds and things or seconds rather than millions of years because it's chemistry and it has to happen fast in my in my book but you know the idea that we can we can spend a few years in a lab messing around with these things and come up with something like that you know is it's is ridiculous um but but can we demonstrate in principle that this kind of reaction that we think needs to happen here really can happen here well then it begins to give some substance to the belief that this kind of chemistry is possible and then you think about well you know a global scale of a laboratory uh, doing this kind of chemistry and you, you 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 know you can at least imagine that some chemistry that i struggle to make happen in the lab a little bit can be happening on industrial scale here yeah i mean according Planetary to scale yeah according to lee cronin he he would say that we want to literally convert sand into something living you know which... yes but uh, i i mean lee cronin is 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 fantastic he's doing he's got amazing ideas um i don't know if any of them are going to work and i don't know <laughs> and he would probably say the same thing you know he he wants them to work but does he in his heart of hearts really expect them to work but even if they do um would most people recognize them as living systems. I think perhaps part of his point is they, they wouldn't and they shouldn't because there's a different kind of living system that's not based on carbon or not based on life as we know it. It's using the same principles rather than the, the same chemistry. Um, but I, I think a lot of people would struggle to recognize it as, 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 as living. Uh, as like you know, I, he he can come out and say, "I've created life in the lab," and and he'll show some system for you. Saying, oh, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, if he does it, then he can explain to us. But um, I think he, you know, he started out as an inorganic chemist, um, trying to make life purely from inorganic molecules. I think uh, yeah, he's added he's added carbon into his systems more recently, and that to yeah. me suggests that the purely inorganic system doesn't work quite as well as he might have hoped. Okay. Yeah. Then maybe I should have. One I mean, maybe answer. yes. I. I, I mean, I've, I've actually never met Lee Cronin. I, oh, I don't know how not. I mean, we we've exchanged emails and and uh, we we were both on a radio program together at one time. But um, I admire his work. Yeah. And actually, we have some convergence, but we're we're starting in very different places. I'm basically starting with carbon-based life as my guide to the principles of life, and he's starting with principles of life uh, in a very abstract sense, compartmentalization, selection, the kind of things yeah. that biologists would talk about, but then yeah. saying, how far can I do this with a completely alien, not carbon-based life system, which is capable of being driven by the same processes and giving rise to something which is a living system, but just not as we know it. It's an admirable thing to do. And, and and I think he's moving in some strange way. We're probably moving closer rather than further away from each other because he's beginning to introduce carbon into his system. I think perhaps he should introduce charge into his system. Well, he and uh, Sarah Walker, they are, they've been developing this theory, assembly theory, uh, which yeah, they call yeah. it. And this is what exactly uh, they, they are trying to explain that how these molecules, they and can that's evolve. That's... Uh, I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing. There are a lot of steps in any biochemical pathway. Um, and, but it, there's some degree of ambiguity about it because what they're effectively saying is if you've got uh, an index of more than, I don't know what their actual numbers are, but effectively if, if, if you've got to have more than eight separate um, things Steps. going on here, 
then 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 it would be a living system that gave rise to it and if we can detect something that requires at least eight different steps to make it then we can be fairly sure it was made by life and not made by a non-living system which is only capable of doing let's say three or four steps um that's probably a dreadful um simplification oversimplification of what they're doing and i would broadly agree with that um, and what's very neat about it is it doesn't specify that it has to be carbon-based. It means that you can keep an open mind about what other forms of life might be out there, um, which is better than saying, oh, I'm looking for a chiral carbon molecule, or, you know, some people say, let's find ATP, which is madness. Why would you find ATP? Mm -hmm. um, the problem that I have with it is, is, is from our own work, if you have a non-living system, which doesn't have any genes in it, let's say, uh, I've got membrane heredity, I've got CO2 fixation taking place across the membrane, and I've got a spontaneous proto-metabolism taking place in the absence of genes or enzymes, the kind of the core biochemical pathways of cells are spontaneously happening there. Um, and I can imagine that I might get trace amounts of nucleotides in this system. And already that is a big ask, and I, I, there's, there's I people in the lab who are working on, on trying to make nucleotides and have had some partial success. Um, but you can imagine that it might be possible to make a bit, but we need a lot. If you want to start polymerizing to make DNA or RNA, we don't want trace amounts, we want bucket loads of these things, which means these systems have to get better at making them. Otherwise, the whole hypothesis is wrong, which is perfectly likely. Um, but if it's not wrong, then the requirement is that this, this simple system has to be capable of driving its own biochemistry through positive feedback loops and autocatalysis and you know, perfectly reasonable processes to get better at making uh, complex molecules. So to make purine nucleotides like ATP, for example, we're talking about um, 12 dedicated steps from, from starting with phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate, for example, is the starting molecule, which we're already dealing with another six or seven steps to make that from CO2 and hydrogen, more than six or seven steps. So, so we're, we're up to 20 steps here. Um, and, and, and this is a system which is, what I'm describing to you is effectively a, a, a non-living system capable of a rudimentary non-genetic form of heredity, which has bootstrapped itself up from a simpler system through positive feedbacks. Now, all this may be complete make-believe on my own part, but what it's effectively saying is you can get to some quite high uh, levels of complexity that we would immediately associate with life um, through a non-living system that's bootstrapping itself up to the level of a living system. So there would be ambiguity in my book there. Yeah, and and I think that does make sense, and it, we'll see that how far we can go with it. Um, um, and I think more of your work will also uh, highlight that uh, how much we can understand with the uh, just starting with hydrogen and carbon dioxide, and how far we can go with the uh, replicating or producing the this, the components of the life forms that we have now. The so. Are there any possibilities to reduce this system? So, I mean, of course, as you said, that there are uh, six, seven steps in the uh, Krebs cycle. And if we can kind of reduce that to two, three steps instead of... Um, well, we don't need a whole Krebs cycle at the beginning. Um, what we really need it to do is to make the carbon skeletons that are used for uh, the rest of biosynthesis. Um, and most of the amino acids that are the most ancient amino acids um are two three four 
at the most five carbon atoms long, and they're all derived from uh, carboxylic acids. Uh, so Krebs cycle intermediates, either directly or indirectly. But um, so what we need the Krebs cycle to do before it becomes a cycle is a kind of a linear pathway of effectively adding CO2 onto carboxylic acids. That's what it's doing. Um, and, and what that if you if you've got a carboxylic acid, so I don't want to get too technical about this, but you've basically got an, an end group which is effectively CO2. It's a, a carbon atom with two oxygens attached to it and a negative charge on it. And we need to add another CO2 onto this. So we take out one of the oxygens and put another CO2 on there. And now we have a double bonded oxygen on what's called the alpha carbon. Uh, and, and that is quite reactive and will tend to react with nitrogen. And then you have an alpha amino acid, which is exactly the kinds of amino acids that we have in life. So building building the right amino acids, we need the carboxylic acids and we need to extend them by adding CO2 onto the end of them. Uh, and this way, starting with these simplest building blocks, we get biochemistry as we know it, including alpha amino acids rather than any other kind of amino acid, which in principle you could have. Um, and, and so we don't need a complete cycle. We just need to be extending up to C4, four, four carbon units, five carbon units at the most uh, in there. Um, and, and very often, most of life is not running a complete Krebs cycle most of the time. It's a partial cycle or it's two halves or it's just a bit here and out there. And, you know, the, the, this idea of we always have a Krebs cycle, which does a complete spin of a cycle at the heart <laughs> of all of life, is a kind of platonic ideal, which is just not true for most things most of the time. Um, but we love cycles and circles and <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, we've, it's we've deluded ourselves by taking it too literally. Circle of life, as we call it. So, yes, we love the yeah. circle of life, but uh, <laughs> it's, this is more of a mad roundabout at the heart of things, and 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 pluck, the traffic can go both ways through it. <laughs> so, in the book, you mentioned that the the next book would be uh, how to get information from uh, from metabolic systems. Is it right, or you're just thinking um, about it? Well, I I'm not going to write anything else for a, 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 you know five years. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's exhausting writing a book. It really takes a lot out of you. Um, it's wonderful fun, but um, the next book will probably be on the origin of life. And the reason, the second reason I want to wait for five years is that I honestly think we'll have made a lot of progress over that five years. I think that um, I don't imagine that most of the world will agree with my viewpoint on it, but, but I, I, I would like to think that if the work that we're doing at the moment keeps on going in the direction it is that in five years time, I will have um, some kind of broad picture of here are the steps that need to happen to go from a non-living planet to genes and molecular machines. Um, here are the bits that are still missing, but, but, but these are the bits that we think it can work this way and effectively join them up. I've written in, you know, several books where there's a chapter or even two chapters on the origin of life, but I've never written a whole book on it. Um, and it's, it's only, it's not the only thing I'm working on, but it's the thing that I, I think is too exciting and too close, um, to, to, to not do the whole job. You know, what, what I've written about before is always focused on one aspect of it. Uh, and, and I've never addressed information in a, in a serious way. So the next one, yes, will be the origin of life right through into information and how molecular machines are coded by information and how they, how they start.
that's just fascinating and then another five uh, after another five years it'll be a book on consciousness I who knows <laughs> I, I, I think even looking five years ahead is probably quite a long way i maybe yeah. i have a heart attack tomorrow so i don't want to get ahead of myself <laughs> no i mean now you can with exercise and stuff now you yeah can i should go for some... a run right after this i've exactly. not managed to go at all this week so i really need to get, get some exercise exactly so it's really exciting to know your work and i think uh, we'll be waiting for more of the stuff coming out of your group your uh from your ideas uh so well increasingly uh, i have to say that uh that the 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 people doing phds and, and postdoc work with i'm, I'm not going to name them all here now but um they're having more and more ideas themselves and i, I i'm feeling more like a passenger sometimes than i certainly than i used to i'm used to having all the ideas and saying how, how about we test this and i'm finding increasingly that people are coming to say well how about this is an idea and i think wow that's a really good idea it's great fun you know mm. um being surrounded by by young imaginative scientific minds of people who are thinking about the most exciting questions in the that we can have as a human being as a scientist and uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to um have a lab that for now for the next two or three years and after that who knows what happens because funding runs out and you're always scrabbling around but for now it's an environment where people are free to think uh, and experiment and pursue their dreams and uh, and I, I think in some strange way that maybe of all the things that I do this is the, the most liberating of all of them is that you give people the space to find themselves. I think sapiens have been uh, creative uh, for most of their times. Uh, all we require good mentors, I think. That we we just need some of the yes. like people who can guide them well. And, and I, I don't think... think there's anything more noble in science than being a good mentor and yeah. helping people exactly. to find themselves and develop themselves. I think if if I aspire to anything, that's probably the thing I aspire to most. And you're always very aware of your own failings in where you could have helped someone better or more or I don't know. But at least if you try and think that way you try and get it better next time <laughs> i like to think that anyway yeah and i think this is already a prof profound message uh, not only for um, you know scientists and uh, academy uh, academicians but also like for the society for people who just guide people in better way and yes i mean i i I mean, I, I think I'm far from alone in being very troubled by the the, the, the deep splits in society these days. Um, and, and there's a deep distrust of science and scientists and r rationality even. Um, and, and, and a strong feeling from a lot of people that uh, scientists are a kind of priesthood who preach at people and tell them how to behave and what to do and don't like it. I think it's a deep human in reaction to being told what to do by someone who seems to be holier than thou, um, you know, sees themselves as superior in some way. And it's it, the whole setup is toxic, actually. Um, and it, it's not what science is really like. Science is very creative and there is really not much of a hierarchy that ideas come from anywhere and and it's not it's not nearly as representative as it ought to be but it's more representative than it used to be and again i think one of the things that i really want to try and do is is open up science to everybody um and this idea that you've got to be you've got to do well in exams even that is a questionable 
thing. Uh, I think, yes, there are some people who are very good at doing exams, and they may also be a very good scientist. But there are also people who are terrible at exams who may be a brilliant scientist um, because they think differently. They think their own way. They, they, they cannot respond to being told, you go away and learn that and then write an exam and you know, get everything memorized and, and back on the page in 40 minutes flat, otherwise you fail. So we drive people out of science that way. People who have often creative imaginations who see the world in a different way. And the more that the more that we embrace people who have their own way of seeing things and help them to find the best form of themselves and, and, and embrace a much wider cross-section of society as can be a wonderful scientist, can make a real contribution. And, uh, you know, it seems like a world that should be real and yet is so far away. And I don't know how we get there from here, but I, I you know, I think we have to try. Yeah, we, we do have to, and especially uh, with all the misinformation, etc. Somehow we need to balance out. We need to balance out the the opinion of experts, but also uh, somehow that we don't go too strong on people uh, giving our opinion and understanding. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. Because experts are wrong about a lot. Exactly. Um, but they also know a lot about a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> it's uh, it's a kind of a difficult balance. And, and um, you know, maybe... You know, I was talking about the importance of being wrong on a daily basis in the lab. It, it, it prevents you from becoming too full of yourself as an expert. I know what's going to happen. Well, no, I know every day that I get stuff wrong. But I also spend my whole life thinking about these things and wondering about it and worrying about it and trying to work out where I went wrong and how I get better at it. And, and you know, there's... Uh, you shouldn't believe what I say, but neither should you dismiss it completely because it's not something that I just thought of two minutes ago and 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 kind of shouted from the rooftops. It's stuff that I spend my life thinking about and worrying about, and it doesn't mean I'm right, but it probably means that you shouldn't dismiss it completely immediately either. Um, less quickly than you might dismiss someone who didn't even know anything at all about it and then has a very strong opinion. So we need to find a balance that recognizes that it's not so much it's, it's more a case of how long have you spent living with these ideas how much do you wrestle with them how much do you care about it and, and, and where are you where are your biases and where are you just wrong or where do you not see it from someone else's point of view where they're I was talking about outsiders coming in often have the best ideas the longer you're in a field, the more stale you become. And the outsiders who have been there, you know, all of these things contribute. And it, it means it's difficult and expertise shouldn't be dismissed, but neither should it be seen as the answer to everything. Yeah, also, I think it depends on uh, what kind of um, this pre-biases that we have or like, uh, you know, in, in Bayesian uh, kind of understanding. Um, so if we have those kind of uh, factors or th that kind of thinking already, it's, it depends. So, so sometimes we align with people so easily, but then sometimes it's so contrasting the difference. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that's difficult to cross that barrier until yeah. unless, you know, you literally try to educate yourself and try to understand the perspective. And as you mentioned in the book, be a molecule in that cell, you know, just like, if you want to understand something like... So yeah, yeah, that's the interesting yeah. part.
So uh, with that, I think this was a great conversation. We discussed a lot really uh, about this. origin of life, bioenergetics, uh, your work, which can actually transform health in in this way. You know, this was also another important topic that we didn't uh, cover to to that extent, but a lot of people are already talking about it. So that was also kind of refreshing for me to read, and uh, I was really uh, um, inspired by it. Uh, thinking Thank about you. Uh, you know biochemistry and biochemists talking about all the all the things uh, and doing. I, uh, I have to remind you, you're doing job. a PhD in biochemistry. So if you didn't enjoy it, then who the hell would? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I I thoroughly enjoyed. I'm glad it. you did. I, I I told I told you that I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed your work, your talks. I, I've been listening to you on other platforms. It it's been amazing. And um, yeah, this thinking is, I think, kind of transforming, uh, or it will transform. I hope that we'll will go a little bit beyond uh, this information based. Uh, I hope research, so. I hope. Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. Great. So thank you so thank much you. for accepting thank you. the invitation. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye.